G'day, mate. Just a quick warning that this episode of Pratt Chat includes Australian accents, Australian slang, and Australian swearing. Also, it's pretty long. But don't worry, it's going to go off like a frog in a sock. Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're discussing The Last Continent, which is all about finding Australia through a bathroom, so maybe it should be called The Last Incontinent. And our guest is writer and illustrator Fury. Welcome back, Fury. Thank you for having me once more. Oh, these puns get me every time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, welcome back, Fury. Thank you. Uh, we haven't had that many returning guests. You, in fact, only our second Huh, yeah. I'm honoured. Well, we, you know, we had such a good time last time. Mm. Thought, and also, you know, good to get someone who you know has not lived in Australia all their life to give us their perspective on the book that we're discussing today. <laughs> so maybe be, tell us a bit about, because you, you were born in New Zealand? I was. Uh, I was born in Sydney. In Sydney, right. Um, and parents were split across the Tasman. So I grew up in New Zealand, but back and forth. So I do have an insider outsider view of, of Australia. So <laughs> I don't know. It's a, yeah, I've got a, a cozy, a Kiwi Aussie view of, uh-huh. of Australia for all the, uh, people who aren't antipodeans. Um, cozy is an Australian word for bathing suit, which is why Australians always laugh and no one else does. Yeah. <laughs> it's also the name of a television personality in South Australia. Oh, really? Who keeps getting in fights on the internet. Oh, classic. Mm. Oh, wow. It's, South Aussie with cozy. But that's even, that's very regional. Like this is the thing I enjoyed about this book is that there's so much stuff in it, but most of it is that small collection of things, which is kind of national. Uh, in Australia, whereas there's a lot of things like cozy is a is a regional term. That's true. Not everybody calls them cozies. Yeah, we call them bathers. Bathers or swimmers. Not swimmers. Um, where I grew you, up, it you was are cozies the or swimmers. <laughs> oh well. Hmm. While well, you swim, the the bathers bathe. When I was in Perth, uh, they call them togs over there. Yeah, we call them togs in New Zealand or swimmers if you're posh. Togs for hmm. is short for what? Like togas? Like people, no people used to swim in togas? Short for swimming togs. <laughs> it's just, yeah, they're just, it's just the word. It's I just don't the know. Word that they I use. don't know the origin of that. No. Where's it? Helen Saltzman when you need her? Um, I was going to say when listening to this, cause I didn't read it. I was listening to the audiobook, but when listening to this, it occurred to me that it was almost like Terry Pratchett had gone on a tour and then had just adapted what had happened to him into the book. Mm. Like the whole missing the luggage. I bet you anything his luggage went missing <laughs> at some point in a tour in Australia. And he's Surely. like, this is what's going to happen now. Which version of the audiobook did you listen to? Uh, Was it Tony Robinson reading it? Mm. Yeah, I'm just curious because there's two versions of every one because Tony Robinson does all of them, but his versions are abridged. And then when they started doing the unabridged ones, it was Nigel Planer reading most of them, but then that changed over and I think... Stephen Briggs was reading some of them. Stephen Briggs. I was, I was yeah. going to say, I want to say Stephen Fry, but I'm pretty sure that's just me thinking Harry Potter. But yeah. no, yeah, it's Stephen Briggs. So Stephen Briggs is an actor and playwright who was the guy who adapted most of the Discworld novels for the stage, right. including combining the plots of the first three uh, Rincewind novels into one play, which is called The Rince Cycle, mm. which I thought Great was name. hilarious. Oh, yeah, premium content. Uh, yeah, now he reads the books. And I have to admit, I have never heard his 
audiobooks. Was it good? It was good. I enjoyed it. Did he do a, an Australian accent? He did. Very good Australian oh. accent. I was impressed. None of this is the good place stuff. <laughs> oh, I was waiting oh, no. for like that to pay off in some way, like why it was so bad, and it just never did. No. So but, is it going to uh, be the bad place again because like the accents are just so grating? <laughs> mm, mm. Oh, God, that would have been such a good joke. Yeah. like They've oh. all been trapped in like a neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was designed for Australians. Because yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a weird thing, isn't it? Like it doesn't really happen to – English or American people, because everyone has to perfect those accents oh, to no. get onto UK or American television. There's um, have you watched Pretty Little Liars? Because there's a no. there's a um character who has to do a British accent, and it is the worst thing I've ever heard. Like it's oh no, it's on par with the Good Place Australian accents. But she's such a good actor, and this I was just like, mm, please stop pretending you're in an Oliver Twist thing. That you're mocking. But she's playing someone from the UK in yeah. an American show. And she is American? Is that right? So the character is supposed to be... The character is supposed, supposed to be, to be from, from the UK, UK. But played by an American actor in yeah. an American show. Yeah. yeah, see, they won't. They don't care about other people's accents. <laughs> but if you want to get a part in an American show, you better have a convincing US accent. Oh, yes. Like, this is the experience of friends mm. who've gone to LA to try and get into TV there. You've got to have a flawless US accent. Oh, yeah, or be cast into an Australian role, which doesn't happen because they give them all to Americans. I mean, yeah. sometimes it does, but... Well. But then they make you do a bad accent anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, this is a TV Australian accent mm-hmm. that you hear. A bit like in the most recent season of Doctor Who, they filmed a lot of it in South Africa and a bit of it was set in Australia, but they clearly employed one South African actor and one Australian actor yeah. <laughs> because one of them sounded a lot more Aussie than the other one. And I get to, to you know, overseas audiences, all those accents probably sound quite similar. But even in Australia, like we have such variation within Australia. Do you get a variation of accents in New Zealand very much? Uh, yeah, North Island, South Island is mm. usually, it's a bit thicker in the South Island. And yeah, that, that's sort of probably the most, I'd say. Mm. Okay. Mm. That's cool. And what you think of a New Zealand accent. Did you enjoy the New Zealand reference? A character has sewn together out of her dress, um, something that's a lot more substantial than a bikini. It was more New Zealand, two quite large, respectable halves separated by a narrow channel. Remember when those were really fashionable in like 2003? They're like, connected by like a thing in the middle they used to have them in home and away tam and sarasok wore them a lot oh and like like it's sort of like a one piece but they'd sort of remove two big panels yeah. at the sides i was mm. like oh for, yeah. for the weird suntan <laughs> yeah. no but see i saw that as uh she did have uh like there were two it was a two-piece it was just like a very tiny little slither of of something because i can see that like 1940s style 1950s style mm. with the sarong mm. um but yeah no i did actually now that you mentioned that, i did appreciate that <laughs> there's a lot to appreciate it's uh, quite a hefty book mm. yeah yeah um shall we shall we get into it yeah, yeah. let's begin Tackle the hefty boy as we do with a reading of the blurb this is the Discworld's last continent i feel hang on wait should i do this in a more australian <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah come on go on. full good play the americans how to do it <laughs> let me let me see if i can tap into my <laughs> you do a good youth, one or a bad one my new south welsh youth okay <clears throat> this is the Discworld's last continent a completely separate creation It's hot, it's dry, very dry. There was this thing once called the wet, which now no one believes in. Practically everything that's not poisonous is venomous, but it's the best bloody place in the world, all right? And it'll die in a few days. Except, who's this hero striding across the red desert? Champion sheep shearer, horse rider, road warrior, beer drinker, bush ranger, and someone who'll even eat a meat pie floater when he's sober? A man in a hat whose luggage follows him on little legs who's about to change history by preventing a swagman stealing a jumbuck by a billabong. 
Yes. All this place has between itself and wind-blown doom is Rincewind, the inept wizard who can't even spell wizard. He's the only hero left. Still. No worries, eh? Oh, God, so good. <laughs> there you go. My oh, favorite is got bu- there. Can you say bush? Bush. Yeah, you'd like put an extra W in there, like bush. Bush. W-S-H. See, this is where you get into the regional variation, because I lived in New South Wales and we were... I'm going I'm to speak like this the rest of the time now. <laughs> uh, but we, we lived in New South Wales and it, we, it, we were very close to Queensland where I grew up most of the time. And we felt this very distinct cultural identity. It was like, we're not Queenslanders. Mm. Even to this day, I sometimes am like, I grew up on the far north coast. And they're like, oh, in Queensland. I'm like, no. <laughs> New South Wales. Um, which is ridiculous because there's really not that much difference between where I grew up and, and you know, South Queensland. But, um, well, I mean, there's some important differences, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, apart from, you know, identity and politics. Uh, yeah, yeah, the politics is quite different. Uh, but yes, although saying wizard in, in an Australian accent <laughs> just reminds me of that. Do you remember that Tumblr post where someone was going, what if the wizarding world was in Australia? Mm. And there was like, there was like talk of like, oh yeah, you muggo. <laughs> was like, what? This is uh, a bit wandless. <laughs> yeah, that's was, right. Was it? What, which oh, one you wandless. <laughs> <laughs> and just muggos. That's what they call we them. We have a, a strong rating on this. Oh, it's, look, it's always got a, uh, like we might put a little note, <laughs> slightly more swearing than normal. Just um, it's a real, it's that's the Australia usual. book. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I was surprised there was, there's actually no real swears in it, which there are in a few other Rincewind books. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone even says shit. Yeah. I just, the sheer number of Australian things, even just in the blurb, mm-hmm. is ridiculous, you know? Which um, is why I think that he's actually come here and just, like, absorbed it. Mm. We used to come so frequently, like, mm. at least once a year for probably a decade on a tour, and he'd do a big tour. He'd do all the main cities, and he'd do, like, three separate signings in Melbourne. Like, he'd do one at Minotaur, and he'd do one at the big bookshop, and he'd do, uh, like, an appearance at a convention whatever convention was on. Mm. I think he was at CanCon one year. He was at, you know, the Australian Science Fiction Convention another year. He's, he was all over the place. In fact, the the edition of the book that I've got, which is the um, original Australian hardcover from 1998, has a sticker on it that says, Meet Terry Pratchett and David Gemmell at FanCon 98. I'm pretty sure FanCon no longer exists. Uh, and FanCon is written with a PH, by the way. <laughs> oh. Um, I don't remember FanCon. Uh it's got a 008 number, so they must have had a bit of money because <laughs> you could call them up for free. Uh, but yes, this is it. This is uh, a return to the Rincewind saga, so to speak. But this time he's in 4X, which I think is how you're supposed to say it because they do sometimes write it out XXXX, but then they also write it 4X as a word. Well, the academics, I think, say it in one way. Uh, like it's like the idea is that it's, I think, not been said aloud very much. People have read it in books or heard references to it. Mm. It's not talked about. Maybe I'm that's trying why to remember this. what he said in the audio book. Mm. I think I it think might it's be X, a bit X, of both. X, X. Yeah, well, some because they also talk about Exian, the Exian which is spelled E C K S I A N in the in the book. But and sometimes they spell it out four X F O U R E C K S. But I think yeah, often it's X X X X, which is. Kind of ridiculous in itself. We do have some cosmic turtle stuff at the start, Liz. Yes. Did you cope okay with this? um, It's always real boring to me. I've heard it. (laughs) (laughs) It's short. It's short in this one. I appreciated that, but it was still there. How do you feel about the cosmic turtle intros, Fury? I think it's one of those things is like, if someone's interested in reading Terry Pratchett, they can literally pick up any book and start from any place Mm. and will get what they need. And so, I don't know. It... 
pros and cons, pros and cons. I'm not against it. Actually, I found the thing that I found out most irritating in this particular book is how many times he makes the joke of back in our day, <laughs> which was a lot. And I think probably listening to it as opposed to reading it made me aware of it more. Um, but that's a joke he uses a lot. And by the sort of fifth or sixth time in the book, I was like, okay, yeah, cool. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Got partic- it, Terry. <laughs> particularly when Ponder's version of the joke is how they always say this and it annoys the crap out of him. <laughs> and then he gets old and he makes it himself. Yeah. I mean, that was... That was great. Is, that's nice. I, I like did like that. Payoff. Yeah. Uh, and the footnote about that was just, oh, chef's kiss there. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I felt the need to say chef's kiss. I guess he couldn't differentiate the noise from a normal kiss. <laughs> you could have just been eating a biscuit. Like. Uh, I could have been. Oh, I wasn't. Um, but there's, there's also, there's a great reference on the first page uh, to like when people just watch giant comets like slam into another planet and they don't mm. do anything, which is presumably a reference to Shoemaker Levy 9, which would have been around the time this was being written. I remember being around for this. I think it was in the sort of mid 90s. Um, we observed this comet that was going to slam into, I can't remember if it was Jupiter or one of the moons of Jupiter. I think it was Jupiter itself. Uh, but then we kind of, we kind of get into it. There's a little bit of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, signposting? Signposting. Mm. Thank you. The signposting, it really wears on its sleeve. Mm. Like there's the whole bit about we're going to find out these things, maybe, um, including the joke. We may even find out why the duck billed platypus with a footnote Mm. saying not why it is anything, just why, which rude. Mm. There's no need to make rude jokes about the platypus. Platypus is a very beautiful and wholesome animal and will fight you and win yeah. if you try it. You know the guy who first discovered them, they thought he faked it by like sewing bits of, like they would not believe him. Huh. Yeah. I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Because you'd be like, oh yeah, you just want your name on a thing. Like he didn't even name it after himself. Yeah. It is one of the most magnificent animals on earth. It's glorious mm. and cute. We'll come back to the platypus uh, <laughs> later on. But we start off in the in the university and... Poor old librarian's not having a great time. Mm. He's magically ill. His morphic field is all messed up because he's been turned by magic into an orangutan at a previous point in his life. And now he's got an illness where every time he sneezes, he turns into something else, but always covered in orangutan ginger fur, which I thought was, you know, as someone covered in ginger fur themselves, I thought that was great. (laughs) I Uh, thought um, it was delightful how there's like a line about how he changes all by his color, which is the opposite of what usually happens when you're sick. Like you lose all your color. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. That's good. I didn't think of that. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So that sort of becomes the reason for the wizards to do anything and then doesn't really go anywhere. Mm. <laughs> Poor old librarian. Although there's lots of cute little things that he turns into along the way, like a deck chair and a, is he a football at one point? He's certainly a book. There's a dolphin. The book of a Ook. dolphin. Is it an autobiography right. or is like what is in the book of Ook? Do you oh, it's think? just words. It's just words that say Ook. Yeah, but Ook means things. So true, like, what is, is the true. story? That's oh, true. Yeah, maybe it is his autobiography. Yeah. That would be interesting. Does mm. it have a final page? Like, it's just. I, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I'd have photocopied that before. They didn't flip it. it. It could have been like one of the books in Death's Library. Like, if I they flipped to yeah. the thing, it's like his current thoughts right now. Yeah, um, if he wouldn't do that to a librarian. He'll have your arms off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when once he got his arms back. True. He could probably yeah. do it in book form, though. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Imagine if they put him in the library with the other books that are getting all unruly because the librarian's not there. Mm. He could have ruled them all. One book mm. to rule them all. Maybe he'd have even preferred that. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. If you were a librarian, would you want to be a book? Well, like in that library, they say that the books learn from each other, so he could actually just learn all of the book knowledge without having to read them. Mm. That's quite nice. I reckon yeah. he probably would have liked that. Yeah. Mm, that's true. And but they can move around as well, so it's not like you just have to sit on a shelf. Yeah. 
It's, it's hard to shelve books if you are a book, though. <laughs> yeah. I think if he learned all of the, the knowledge from all of the books, he'd learn how to change form yeah. as mm. well. So Maybe. Or just order all the other books around yeah. as a book. Just mm. have a book society. <laughs> this is a great tangent. I'm glad we went on yeah. it. <laughs> literally, literally a book society. Um, now, there's, speaking of tangents, though, there's a lot of little bits in this book that really have nothing to do with what plot there is, including mm-hmm. right at the start, the ritual of the Arch-Chancellor's keys. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for that to like pay off. Yeah. Mm, no. It's no. Just, universities it, are silly. It's just a piss take of, yeah, some of the ridiculous things that still happen in universities, particularly in the UK. And there's, I mean, also, it is hilarious. I do love a good joke about how something very mundane becomes a fancy ritual. Mm. Um, Me too, especially like the ceremony of it and like the nod when the the young one comes forward and says, uh, no, I checked them there this morning. Um, <laughs> yes. It's just, and then, yeah, He's super well nervous about getting yeah. it right. Yeah. Brandishing the ceremonial blazer. Yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. But yeah, it really has nothing to do with the plot. It's just a nice little joke. Scene setting. And then, uh, yeah, the, the wizards go off. They go, oh, we've got to do something. We've got to magically fix the librarian, but we can't magic him because we don't know his name. No one mm. can remember his name. All records of who he really was have been torn out of all the books in a you know, with a suspicious sort of bananary handprints mm. left behind. Uh, so the librarian is, does not want anyone to turn him back into a human being. He really loves being an orangutan. So it's um they're like, well who who remembers his name? The only person who remembers his name is Rincewind. And they accidentally send him to Forex at the end of his last book. So uh that's where they've got to try and go. Except they can't magic him back from there. It's a bit too hard to figure out even where Forex is. Um, so they go off on a quest to find someone who can help them. Meanwhile, Rincewind is in Forex eating grubs. Rustling um, up some grub. Yeah. And in, in also, like, he, one of the things that sound kind of interesting about this book is that so much of it is based on the dreaming, the, these ideas from Aboriginal mythology and history. But there's very few actual Aboriginal people in it. Yeah. I was going to say, like, as much as I love Terry Pratchett, he is the product of a culture who did violently colonize most of the world. Mm. And so his, even with the best intentions, his, uh, he has limits to what he can effectively do. What I didn't expect is in my reading of it, he managed to do better than in some of the other books where mm. it looks like he actually has engaged with the mythology and had talked mm. to Aboriginal people, like the whole difference between uh, a boomerang that comes back and a boomerang that sticks in the thing that you threw it at. Like you, mm, you so don't good. know that unless you've actually done some research. Yeah. And in a lot of the other books, he just sort of leans on the stereotypes and it feels to me like he hasn't really done that. Obviously I'm not Aboriginal, so I'm not uh, the best person to make a call on how, how effectively he's handled it. Um, but yeah, I, I, my gut feel is like it's better than, um, better than a lot of the other cases of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And from my reading of, and again, you know, obviously I'm also not an Aboriginal person, but my reading and understanding of the dreaming, the way he talks about it is that is a much more sophisticated understanding that we have now than the sort of more traditional one where it's just, oh, it was just a long time ago. Whereas mm. actually it's more, it is more a place that kind of exists about a bit outside of normal space and time where things can be long ago and now. And the way he talks about the paintings and the way that the history works on Forex really, you know, leans hard into that. And I think he does a great job of making his own version of it that is pretty respectful to, you know, the, the real world mm. ideas. Mm. Um, but again, but then it is still a weird thing where that's such a present thing. And yet, we never actually directly meet 
any Aboriginal characters or equivalent, you know, Discworld equivalent. Mm. Um, and the one main one that we kind of meet is not, is not really a person. Is sort of like this creator spirit mm. who's great. He's a great character. And I, I really like his like trickster mate as well. Mm. <laughs> we'll get to soon. But yeah, I just thought that was whether intentional or not, like a way to sort of sidestep any getting it wrong. Mm. Mm. I think for me, that was the sort of weird thing. And there are a couple other weird things as well, but mostly it's, it feels pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting it to have dated a lot worse or that there'd be more things to date. Mm. Well, I think interestingly, he kind of protects himself against dating because it feels like a book you could have written, apart from a few specific references, it's a book you could have almost have written any time from about the 1970s onwards. You know, there's a lot of the stereotypes that in there have been around for a long time. Mm. Mm. And apart from some of the specific more recent stuff like, you know, the the Priscilla Queen of the Desert stuff and the more well relatively modern depiction of the Mardi Gras and stuff like that, there's most of the rest of it could have been written 20 years earlier. You mm. know? So I think maybe that helps it feel a bit timeless. Yeah. Because they're those little bits of rusted on Australiana that are, are sort of still around. Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's like the things that you would have seen from the outside most conspicuously of mm. Australia and still kind of do because that I don't think the perspective on us is our pop culture, it, that kind of thing has changed very much in the, the world's eyes over, over no. the last 30 years. Well, well, we just don't make much of it. Mm. Well, we not, do. They just don't uptake way. it. Yeah, they, well, yeah. yeah. They yeah. very much pick and choose what what's Australian. They'll only take our horror films mm. and our cute kangaroo stuff, yeah. and uh, occasionally act, actors who then they make um, do yeah, yeah do, do their accents, American or English accents, or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. They yeah. very much cherry pick what they want from us. We produce a lot of good stuff. Mm. I, I I was gonna say, um, yeah, I would be interested if there are any. Uh, aboriginal uh listeners to hear what they they think because i'm acutely aware that uh um i have limits to my knowledge um and understanding of this um so yeah really be interested please reach Mm. out yeah we would we would love that yeah we'd love to hear from you if you want to contact us via social media uh, use the hashtag pratchat 29 for this Mm -hmm. episode or you know hit us up on our website or send us an email at uh, chat at pratchat podcast.com we'd love to hear from you hmm. um but uh not only is Rincewind there managing to survive barely on grubs uh, more or less his diary of food is so good yeah it's oh it's good <laughs> but uh also in a mine an opal mine someone finds a weird giant seems like a giant opal um but then as they sort of tap away at it it seems like it's maybe hollow and then seems like it's got feet and then it seems like it's alive, uh, and it comes out of the mind by itself. And I, I think we all knew what it was pretty mm. much straight away, didn't we? I, I mean, didn't. I was kind of like, oh, really? What's this truth storyline that's going to be a mm. big part of this book? They've really given him a whole bunch of info, but no, no. Poor old truth. Because I'm pretty sure I hadn't read the end of this book. Like as I, I definitely read the beginning of it, but I think it's one of those ones that I put down and then returned to the library and then didn't come back to. Mm-hmm. Which surprised me because I thought I had, but yeah. Well, I don't think I've read it since it was new. So that's like 22 years that I, since I last read it. And I remembered certain things about it, but the things that I remembered, which I was sure were massive parts of the plot, are like single scenes. Mm. Um, what did you remember it well, Fury? Yeah, I remember the kangaroo and just being so confused because I didn't have any concept of Aboriginal mythology at that point. Uh, or, and so, uh, just being like, what is going on? And so probably not finishing it. Um, just being a little bit baffled by it and putting it down. 
Mm. Um, yeah, it didn't stick with me. And I think oh, also part of that, I, th- I think probably is the fact that it's essentially just a, a road trip book. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't really have a plot. No. It's just driven by getting to the next joke, really, or the next thing to satirize. Um, Which I loved. <laughs> <laughs> looked very satisfying. Yeah. And, like, if anybody does it, then Terry Pratchett does it well. It's amazing how big this book is, considering mm. how little plot there is. Yeah. He just had a lot of... He's just like, I'm not going to use any of these Australia jokes any other time. <laughs> yeah. Let's get them all out in one go. Yeah. We're never coming back here. <laughs> Let's just do it. Um, and he really does. Uh but, and look, you know, the luggage goes off looking for Rincewind and we get that first, around this point in the book, we get that first kind of instinct that something's watching over him. And we don't know what it is yet, but there's some sort of presence uh, that's like that guy. We need mm-hmm. that guy. And you're like, why? What do you need him for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's an idiot. Um, but he's our idiot and we love him. Um, and uh, the wizards, meanwhile, still trying to figure out how we're going to find 4X, how we're going to get Rincewind here so we can help the librarian. They go off to visit the professor of, uh, what is it, egregious professor of cruel and unusual geography. Yeah. Which is, which which is a good title. Geography, yeah. I want that title. That's so good. Um, I mean, I hear it's available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly so. Uh, I'm sad we don't get to meet him. Yeah. Well, that would have been an, he would have been an interesting character because we so rarely meet new wizards. They, mm. He so rarely introduces any new wizard characters. In fact, I don't think, I don't know that he ever does. Like once we've got the established faculty, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I mean, in the early books that he'd often have like the wizard of this book, you know, in Mort, there's Cutwell and in, uh, moving pictures, there's, uh, what's his name? Um, Ponder's uh, roommate. The who, Errol and, Flynn one. The Errol Flynn guy. His name escapes me at the Vincent? moment. Vincent? Yeah, yeah, Vincent something. But he, uh, but, but we just don't get many new wizards after that. I want to just find out more about the interesting bones and the boring bones that he has classified. Mm. <laughs> Like, he's just like marking time, obviously, but I, I need to know like what makes an interesting bone, what makes a boring bone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did also enjoy the way that they go into his quarters and they're looking around his room and they, there's just books and rocks and stuff. But then in the bathroom, the door just opens into the bathroom, but the window in the bathroom opens onto a beach. Yeah. Uh, and they're all like, Oh, we've seen this sort of weird dimensional thing before. This is cool. Let's go and check it out. It reminded me a little bit, there's a, uh, get ready to drink listeners, there's a Doctor Who story uh, that didn't get finished uh, called Sharda, which was written by Douglas Adams, which he then more or less adapted into um, the first Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency novel. And there's a character in that who is called Reg, who's this old man living in St. Sed's College in Cambridge, whose rooms are a time machine. And that's because in the original script, he was an old time lord and his rooms were his TARDIS. And I just, it just had that sort of weird feel of, oh, we're going into an old building, but there's like weird time space stuff happening. I really liked that a lot. So that cartoon Mott or something where the boy had a monster living in his cupboard and they could go in the cupboard and travel through time? That does ring a bell. Is it uh, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe that you're thinking of? It was called Mott. I think it was like <laughs> M-O-T. I vaguely remember it being on TV for a short while. Uh, I yeah. have no idea. It's like a 5 p.m. ABC show. That it does definitely ring a bell. Yeah, yeah. But yes, there's also a yeah. bit of a line which is the wardrobe <laughs> vibe going on. That is cool. I, that kind of stuff I always like. I think it's just because, you know, I'm a you know, lifetime lover of Doctor Who. So any kind of small space that opens into a big space is like, this is cool. It's my jam. Mary Poppins. Well, you like, would have loved the Australian University segment. Yeah. Then. Oh, yeah. That was so good. It's oh, bigger I, on the inside. Oh, <laughs> I love Bugger Up University. Okay. All right, we'll get all right, there. We'll, we'll get, get there. there. Yeah, we got to get to sheep hairdressing. So let's, like, let's get That's there. That's true. Um, 
Anyway, they look through the window. They're like, oh, look, it's a beach. Um, should we go through? Oh, don't know. And then they start talking about, oh, yeah, I don't want to go in there. There's all these probably dangerous animals there in the sea Pineapples. and in the things. Mm-hmm. And, and Rid Kelly's like, really? <laughs> Get my fishing rods. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Rincewind's wandering around in Forex. Uh, um, and he's, you know, making his diary. He's also making thongs, mm-hmm. which or I, flops. I did not. That would, I was like, what is he doing with this wood? Is he not? Is he making a house? And then he's like, he's making thongs. This is weird. It's just so many things in this book are just an excuse to get some Australian reference in. But the explanation works perfectly. They they are the sort of easiest shoes to make, and you can suddenly leave them behind if you have to run in a hurry. See, this is, again, I'm going back to the theory that he's actually tried thongs on and they've just slipped right off his feet and he's been like, well, these are useless <laughs> what shoes. What a dumb idea. Yeah, like... you got to get your feet used to them. you got to train. Yeah. you got to earn wearing flip-flops. You can't just wear them. <laughs> <laughs> There's rigorous training involved. Yeah, I used wow. to hate it, but I, like, I pushed through and now I can wear them. Okay. My feet are all, like, bent to the proper... So, yeah. <laughs> proper angles. Yeah. They clench in the right places. Yeah. Oh my the skin God. is like properly you, like. Oh yeah. You got to break, break in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You get blisters. It's like any good boots except without the outside bit. They're a great footwear. They're not as protective as you might think though. The, the main thing they're protecting you against is the ground directly beneath you. That's it. Which is an important thing in Australia as the ground is often very but we've hot got in so summer. So many snakes. <laughs> we should all be wearing enclosed shoes all the time. Yeah. That's true. I mean, look, and I look as speaking as a very pale ginger, uh, I did not wear them because it just meant mm. the tops of my feet would get sunburned mm-hmm. in like nice patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, get the, the, the getting that tan is like part of summer. I don't tan. What are you talking about? Yeah, no, we, we just go red and then <laughs> our skin dies off the top of yeah. Sloths we, off. yeah. we should really not live in this country. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's, we are the last people who deserve to be here <laughs> genetically. It's ridiculous. But yeah, Rincewind's he's baking thongs. He's running away. Um, but also he's like trying to learn the local language. He's meeting various tribes as he refers to them of, mm. of local people, um, out in the bush. Uh, and he seems to get along okay with them up until the point he starts asking about, you know, the weather, mm. uh, and using, picking up the local words that mean water and going water falling from the sky. And they're all like, what the hell is wrong with you? Get out of here, you weirdo. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, it's not so great, but he's being watched. So it is interesting. I read that a little bit like, cause they would get like, I read that as quite angry. Mm, yeah. Mm. They seem quite angry, didn't they? And Rincewind always being told like, you're the reason why everything's wrong. Mm. And so I read that as the local tribes being like, so, ah, okay. So you're, you know, you need to fuck off cause you're the one who's, um, mm, they know you know, messed stories. everything up. You know, they've existed there beforehand, which is a really kind of nice little thing i think it's like yeah. oh were you doing that pratchett was that what's going on there i didn't fully pick up on that but i think you might be right there yeah. it's disproportionate rage to if they're just he was just bringing up a sore point mm. yeah. yeah and so it made me think of like is pratchett making a comment on a white people shouldn't be in this country and white people brought all this bullshit to this country and mm. so I, I don't it's not strong enough for me to say definitively but i thought that's sort of my interpretation of it anyway yeah yeah, hmm. no, I think that's nice. And it's also sort of that acknowledgement, perhaps, that you know, the, the stories passed down are from a very long time ago. Mm. So even though the only way you would get that story is from the creative spirit, from when he first builds the whole continent, because there was no one else around at the mm. time, but they would have had that passed down to them. And just like they remember all the stories about all the people becoming animals and, and all the animals building things and making things, they also have this story that guy in a wizard hat? Mm. He's wandering around and talking about rain. No, no mm-hmm. good. Mm. Yeah, so maybe that's it too. 
I like that. Mm. Mm. He's still being watched, though, by the thing in the billabong, which mm. we still don't know what it is at this stage, which then does some magical thing that Rincewind is not aware of. He meets this silent Aboriginal man who just sort of watches him and then leaves, doesn't say anything. But then a voice talks to him. Uh, there's a weird song. And then Rincewind's suddenly able to find all these ridiculous foods in the bush. He's He learns the secret of finding bush tucker, except it just means he reaches under a log and pulls out a jam sandwich. It's so ridiculous. I just, I, I don't know how I felt. Like, every time that happened, I was like, I get it. Mm. And it's this weird magical thing where it's like, well, he can't die. We need him to stay alive. But it was a bit, it was a bit weird when he starts pulling out plates of eggs and chips and stuff. Mm. I, I was don't like, know. that's yuck. It's been under a rock. <laughs> but was to be it? Fair, so, so have grubs, you know. Yeah, but like options. you expect that to be gross. <laughs> I, I got the impression, distinct impression, those things were not under that log until he reached his hand under mm. there. See, I got the impression that he was reaching under the log and actually pulling up grubs, but they just tasted different. Oh, really? Mm. I mean, cause it started off with that comment about, I don't know, anyone being out here would go mad enough to see pink elephant on a, on a monocycle or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. mm. And so like, I wondered if it was just like affecting his ability to grasp reality, which all, all could be true. And the ambiguity is kind of nice to it. And there is that line that's like, it was a chicken sandwich. It tasted almost like chicken. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. I, well, I hadn't I thought mean, about that, but I was kind of like, oh, you know, I'll just accept that. Keep reading. But yeah. I just, I guess I interpreted it more as a, as a literal joke about, you know, the secret of Bush Tucker being you can magically find food in the, in the desert. And it, in his case, it means he literally magically finds food in the mm. desert. So yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Hmm. Okay. Mm. Uh, this is also where death shows up in the book. And I, I think my favorite part about this little death scene where he's at home in his domain and he's like, I haven't thought about Rincewind for a while, mm. is he looks at his lifetimer, which looks like, you know, someone hiccuped in a glass blowing factory, which I don't think is the description in this book, but it's pretty close. Mm. And he's supposed to have died and then hasn't died. And he's been the plaything of the gods and he's like been to the underworld and he's been through all these alternate dimensions. And so he's, it's all over the shop. And I just thought, yeah, I like this. And it kind of also makes, a kind of sense, not entirely, of how death is when interacting with Rincewind in the first couple of books where he's very, very different. Mm. Mm. But it's sort of just he's got this morbid fascination with him. It's like, yeah, I just thought I'd check in on you. Mm. Like, I don't know when you're going to die. It's really weird for me, mm. <laughs> which I kind of liked. What does this book look like? That's a good question. I imagine it would be a choose your own adventure, except all the adventures have been chosen or not, or maybe not. And they change. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I like that. It's just got all these like bookmarks in it so you can go back and choose again. Yeah. (laughs) And scorch marks. Mm -hmm. That's pretty great. It's a water damage cover. Well, this is, I mean, after death decides, let's go and check him out. I haven't been to this place for ages. This is when we follow our creator spirit, who we figure out that's who it is later, into what is never named as such, but it's clearly a depiction of the dreaming, like that other world where all the gods do their stuff, or this, these gods do. And he's like, I need someone to watch over this guy and do it. And he calls forth clearly a magpie to start with. But then he's like, all right, go and look after this guy. And the magpie's like, why? <laughs> I don't want to do this. He's like, tough. It's your job. Off you go. And then he it turns into a talking kangaroo. And starts talking to Rincewind. It's mm. just a, I said, really, I just really loved it. Mm. Uh, before we get to the horny plants, can we jump back to, um, <laughs> what? Destamain? You know, the horny plants. Uh, no, I don't, but let's go back to Destamain. I know about yeah. the horny plants. Fury knows about the horny plants. I don't remember the horny plants, but we'll get there. Yeah, okay. there's going to be a lot of horny plant discussions, all right? Okay. But 
Back in Death's Domain, when he tries to find out about what the day, because there's a lot of dangerous animal jokes and he requests the volumes on, mm-hmm. on it. And then he and Albert just get like attacked by all oh. of these books. Mm-hmm. That's right. I forgot about like, that. Volume three of just like insects that are dangerous. Like 29B part two. Yeah. Yeah. So he instead requests the animals that aren't dangerous and it's a single sheet of paper and it says some of the sheep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this just reminds me of that New Zealand horror film, Black Sheep. I was just thinking that. I played a drinking game for that once and I got so drunk I don't know how it ends. I still haven't seen it. Is it good? No, it, I don't know. <laughs> it looks like it'd be hilarious. It's if schlocky. You, if you're not familiar with have you seen it, Fury? I haven't, but I know people who worked on it. As uh, New Zealand is a very small place, yep. you name anything, and they're like, we're, we're duty bound to say, not everyone in New Zealand knows everyone in New Zealand, but yes, I do know people who worked on that. <laughs> it's it's fun. Like, it is what you expect it to be. It's like mm. a genetic experiment gone wrong, and, and sheep turn into crazed killer zombie style sheep yeah, or something. something, something like, like that. And yeah. whole, which which is horrifying when you think about it because there's so many sheep. If, like, all those sheep turned feral. 70 million in New Zealand. You would die. Now, the kangaroo talks to Rincewind and it, Rincewind runs away because he realizes he's being chosen by destiny once mm. again. And we are at peak Rincewind in this book. Like, even in interesting times, which, you know, as we discussed in the episode about it, had a lot that was not great about it. But Rincewind was at his most Rincewindy in that book. And here he takes it an extra step and then sort of goes through a weird mirror and comes out the other end where he's not even Rincewind anymore. He's something else. But also, you know, he's, uh, he's just so genre aware. He mm. understands his role as, as death puts it, like the universal coward or mm. the eternal coward who is constantly chosen by destiny and has just doesn't want to have a bar of it. And so runs. And the, the kangaroo is kind of cottons onto this and more or less tricks him into running to where he wants him to go anyway. And he falls into this sort of secluded water hole. Um, Once again. With, with a bunch of horny plants, apparently. Is that no, what you're talking no, about? No, 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 no. We'll get to that. You'll, know, earlier, you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah. Oh, I'll know what you're talking about. Okay. Um, so what I find interesting as well is maybe me reading too much into it, but was Terry Pratchett uh, sick of writing Rincewind by this point? Because I wonder how much... He, like, the ridiculous timer and the fact that Rincewind keeps running away. Like, I wonder how much that's actually playing into uh, Terry Pratchett's own being like, oh, do I have to do this again? Like, I think Christie writing Poirot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't think he ever sort of hated Rincewind, but I think he just sort of felt like he'd done as much with the idea of Mm. a coward character that he could. And but I also think- that was just so popular. And so I think he probably felt pressured or maybe his publishers had said, everybody loves Rincewind. Yeah. And so that's why there are so many. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, and there's, there's not that many. I mean, there's the first two, obviously. And then he, then there's sorcery and interesting times. But if you're and- getting fatigued of a character, it's a lot. Yeah. As a, as a writer. And Eric, I suppose actually there are quite a few. There cause there's yeah. this, Cause after this, there's the last hero. And then there's, he's, but then that's the last one where he's really a main character because mm. he's, he's, that, and then experience. the only other one where he's got really any significant, uh, appearances, um, unseen academicals and he's in all the science of Discworld books, but again, sort of more as a supporting character, mm. but that's sort of where his story ends up. So yeah, it's, I think so. I think he's sort of like, what else do I do with this guy? Mm. But the eternal coward stuff I really enjoyed because, mm. like, you know, I've enjoyed some more cock in my time. Uh, that's That sounded wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did it, though? I, <laughs> no, I guess not. But I've enjoyed uh, I've enjoyed some Michael Moorcock. He's the one who writes about the eternal champion, sort of the idea of across all of time and space, there's these people who personify the eternal hero. And, you know, and, and Pratchett's clearly read his... Um, Joseph Campbell. I mean, like we just, our last episode, we talked about only you can save mankind where the first chapter is titled the hero with a thousand extra lives. 
And so he knows he knows his stuff where he's talking about all this mythology. And I think he's just sort of trying to fit Rincewind into it in a place that makes sense and where maybe he can still do some interesting things. Mm. But in this book, it's, you know, so much of the narrative is about turning Rincewind into something that he's naturally not. Mm. But where he sort of fits because of his kind of attitude and because of his kind of character. And I, you know, I do, I do like the way that even as he's being kind of forcibly molded into this stereotypical Australian bush hero, that while it is out of character for him, some of the stuff that he does, the, his personality doesn't need to change very much for him to fit right in there. And I, I kind of liked that. Mm. He did feel like he fit in. Yeah, I liked it because it was what fate was doing to him as opposed to what he was choosing to do, mm. which worked. Yeah, it flowed together really nicely, I found. He's being buffeted by the currents of fate. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of currents, uh, the wizards uh, found themselves on this island. Ah, with the horny plants. Uh, with some horny plants. Uh, <laughs> because they followed through, because the egregious professor of uh, cruel and unusual ge- geography is not in his rooms. He must have gone through the window. So they go through to look for him. They can't find him anywhere. They sort of wander around the island. They find a journal of his that refers to the island as Mono Island. It just sounds like it's just glandular fever everywhere, yeah. as we were saying earlier. And they find his camp, but he's not there. And they try to figure out where it is. But then Mrs. Whitlow comes in to deliver some sandwiches and dislodges the the stick that they left in the window to make sure that it doesn't close. And it closes and they can't go back through it. And they're stuck on the island with Mrs. Whitlow. And it's just nice to see Mrs. Whitlow get a bit of the spotlight. Yeah. I just got to say, probably my favorite part of this book is the senior wrangler's thirst for Mrs. Whitlow. <laughs> just ongoing and like consistently hilarious and yeah. he's, he's like a like a very early teens person who has got that thirst but doesn't quite know what it is or what to do with it as yeah. well because he's a wizard like he's lived in this university kind of away from the world of other human beings uh and also in this sort of enforced celibacy of like we can't make any sorcerers but then but he can't deny this this woman, and mm, I especially yeah. like the fact that Pratchett clearly has this strong image of who Mrs. Whitlow is, and it's so counter to the narrative of what we might consider like beautiful in now nowadays. I think he describes her as like a candle that's been melted or something like that. So <laughs> yeah. she's ki- clearly like, oh, he's, yeah, and mm. there's not a single straight line on her or whatever, apart from when she gets angry and then her lips get very razor thin. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Um, and it just like it's this beautiful sort of and nobody none of the wizards sort of mention it apart from um red kelly who's just sort of keeps sort of um putting the ruler between them or you know whenever dean sort of wants to run off after her or whatever um but yeah i don't know it's just that probably my favorite dynamic in the book is is between the wizards and mrs whitlow and Mm. specifically senior angler and i really like how she clearly knows how to to manage them like, she's like, oh, I couldn't get ideas above my station. I couldn't possibly sit at the table with you. And so she ends up with the table to herself while they sit a little distance away in the sand after spending all day building this table. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting how, you know, the wizards who are so used to being the gentleman above um, and she's, you know, below stairs. But when they're forced to share a space, they're so deferential. Mm. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of nice in its way. I mean, it's very old fashioned. It's incredibly old fashioned. Yeah. Um, but it... It works as a satire. Yeah. It's like a very loving satire of that particular dynamic. And they're the ones who are being mocked throughout because they sort of t- 
there's a bit where they call them the weaker sex and he's like, and it's like, oh, because they don't have beards and all this kind of stuff. And it's clear that the joke is on them and they're mm. wrong throughout. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that, um, Pratchett does quite well, I think, in, in this, um, book is punching up, um, mm. like how they go on about, so, you know, uh, the primitives don't, don't know how to make a boat and they have no idea. And, you know, the primitives made a boat, then, so we should, we should be able to do it. No worries. Or, yeah. Um, and they're all like, all we got to do is find a book about boat building. Exactly. For <laughs> and so like the, it's so obvious that they're completely useless at mm. all of these different things, but they have these ideas above their station. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I found it very, very funny. Yeah. yeah. They are the peach butt of the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Uh, meanwhile, back in the waterhole, um, Scrappy the kangaroo. I love that he's called Scrappy the kangaroo. Yeah. I mean, it's just he's it's a scrappy it, version of Skippy. It's uh, great. Yeah, I, I look and I and I read I read some commentary online because I did look up the APF, the annotated Pratchett file for this book because I'm like I'm sure there's a couple of things in here that I'm going to miss. As it turned out, there weren't that many, but there were a few. But some of the ways I found it really interesting reading it because of the way they talked about things. One of which was there are a few people who felt this was like way too specific a reference. And I'm like, you know, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo was aired in the UK and the US. Like it mm. was quite popular at the time. Mm. Um, so I think it's a, it's a much bigger cultural touchstone than maybe people assumed when I mean, generational though. Like I probably caught the, the tail end of it. Also, yeah. I didn't have much of my, <laughs> much <laughs> of my childhood here, only the holidays really. So yeah. I mean, there was a newer version of it in the sort of late eighties and early nineties, mm. but I think mostly I knew it a little bit like there's a lot of things these days that people know through the parodies of them on the Simpsons. I think that's where I mostly knew Skippy is because sketch shows were constantly uh, taking the piss out of the idea that a kangaroo could tell you someone was lost down a, you know, a mm-hmm. well in much the same way that they talk about Lassie telling people. So it's that sort of thing I, I recognize. So if New Zealand had like a version of that, what animal do you think it would have been? Uh, look, probably a sheepdog, I guess. Dogs make sense. Like Lassie yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But yeah. Kangaroo's cute. Yeah. But I, I mean, what is it like? Mary the mower. Mm. I, I could get behind that. Oh, yeah. It's a big flightless bird. Coming the moas are extinct, though. That's so why it's charming. It's <laughs> magical. It's come back. It's like the one, the last mower of all. The kangaroo <laughs> does explain to Rincewind kind of what's going on. It just says to him, look, you're the re- everything's fucked up here. Yep. And you're the reason for it. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he talks about these great concepts like, yeah, these paintings, they've been here for thousands of years since about two hours ago and mm. you're like what and it's just i love this so much anything that's weird time business it's just so my bag and it's wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff yeah and it's just so weird liz said it so you don't have to drink and um i just uh, i was gonna make a jeremy bury me reference but okay yeah yeah oh it is very jeremy it Barry is very me. jeremy Barry me. oh that's true Scrappy basically directly tells rinswind you've got to fix this and rinswind's like sure sure yeah, no problem. Find a bunch of wizards because he's shown all the cave paintings that are like the weird pointy-hatted people. And he, he sort of, he he looks at the paintings. And I think just like any point in the book where people are looking at the paintings on the rocks, the way Pratchett describes them is is kind of beautiful. Like he really gets it. He's clearly seen enough art and heard about it and read about it that he, he gets what it's depicting and how it works. And the whole idea that it doesn't just represent a slice of time of the thing, but also, you know, its whole existence, its future, its past, the interior of the thing, the way he talks about the pond and he's like, I'm not going to draw a pond as a, as a 
you know, an ellipse because that's what it looks like when you look at it. I'm going to draw it as a circle because we know that's what it actually is when you, that's what shape it actually is. All that stuff. I'm like, this is great. Mm. Like it feels like he's really getting it. So, um, that was, I thought I really enjoyed. And it's this picture that sort of inspires the cover, I think, for the new hardcover editions. Like it is kind of with the four pointy headed wizards and all of that. So, but it's got a sneaky luggage in there too. <laughs> a sneaky luggage. Sneaky luggage. Brilliant. But, uh, he, Decides he's not going to have a bar of this as usual and he's runs have a from bar his of destiny. The bar. Mm-hmm. He is, he is, well, he doesn't get to there yet because he, he gets a ride with a guy in a, a super fast cart who's got a couple of supercharged horses and it turns out to be a dwarf named Mad. Yes. In the clearly Mad Max inspired part of the book. Now this is the bit that I remembered and I was like, oh yeah, so there's this huge part of the book where they're in, it's Mad Max and they're being chased around and stuff and it's like one, it's one scene. Yeah. It's one scene. He gets picked up by him. Um, and he's got an armored cart and he's wearing all this leather and he gets out of the cart and he's like, Oh, you're a dwarf. And he's pointing the crossbow up his nose. Um, and more scary, really. Yeah, it was great, but he, he is being chased by bandits. Um, and, uh, there's that great bit where he gets Rincewind to get up on the roof of the cart and fire the crossbow at him, but he doesn't really like firing crossbows. And then it seems like he's done magic when actually one of them's ended up with his hat and his hat just happens to have a Forexian spider inside it, which bites the guy and he suddenly goes green and purple and drops dead. <laughs> and you're like, this is great. And that causes a big pile up, which kills or takes out of the fight all of the other people in the chase. And then they take all their hay because mm-hmm. that's what they have instead of guzzling. <laughs> they have hay for the horses, which I thought was so great. That was awesome. And the depiction of all the vehicles, like there's the one that's one giant wheel being pulled by an emu. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh. So good. Yeah, so I hadn't watched any Mad Max when I first read this, but having since obviously watched Fury Road Mm. and I could actually engage with what was happening uh, and appreciate it. Yeah. Is that why they have blood bags now? Because of the spider thing is like gone through their DNA? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, clearly. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, But let's get back to the horny plants because I know you want to talk about it. Because on Mono Island, the wizards have found all these miraculous plants um, cause they, they sort of talk about, oh, I wish we had some food like this. I wish I had some food. And then they start finding like cake plants and, um, other weird food plants, like a custard plant, plant, a cheese plant. They find like a, 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 a cigarette, a plant, cigarette yeah. plant mm-hmm. which has got seeds in the filter and Yuck. it's just weird. And the, the bees that make like honeycomb full of rum, mm-hmm. it's like fermented honey or something. I think that's what the bees are making. I wasn't a hundred percent sure on that, but they got rum from somewhere. So I think that's where it was from. It was so good. Mm. And it just, I, all the little descriptions of how they work, you could tell Pratchett had so much fun just sitting down and going, okay, so if cheese was going to grow as a plant, mm. <laughs> what would it look like and how would it work? It's genius. I also love how the, the dynamic between Ponder and the rest of the wizards, how the rest of the wizards just don't question it. It's like, it was great. Don't, you know, well, let's eat it. And Ponder's like, oh, we really just need to think about this. This doesn't feel right. Oh, and I suppose the librarian as well. The librarian gets a little bit worried about it, yeah. but can't express that. Because they're the only ones who realize that it's called Mono Island because there's only wow. one of mm-hmm. every kind of plant or animal on the island. Although, I mean, Ponder also, we've got that bit in the start where he's thinking about what he doesn't know yet is evolution, or at least... It's phrased at the start. This was one of the weird things in this book is that at the start, it's very much phrased as Ponder has got the idea of evolution and it's on the tip of his tongue, but he can't quite articulate it because he doesn't quite get it. Mm. But then in this bit, when he, you know, this all happens and he eventually meets the God, 
he uses the word evolution mm. in in a fairly like reasonable way like mm. like he does have an understanding of the concept so it's a, i thought that was a little bit of a weird mismatch that didn't quite make sense and that Pratchett was maybe trying to have his cake and eat it too with the way that Ponder is interacting with those things. And also, like, if they're going to do evolution, why did they do it in Tasmania rather than in Darwin? Like, that would have been... (laughs) (laughs) Is it Tasmania? Is that what Mono Island's supposed to be? Well, yeah, that was going to be one of my questions because it just kind of feels like a god island. It doesn't really feel like a place in the world. It just feels like this separate, almost on its own sort of... Mm you know wherever and there are plenty of small islands near australia kangaroo island oh i tell you what it might be mm-hmm. i remember a while ago thinking that the god was like made to look like darwin so it might be the galapagos or something oh, yeah that would make sense yeah, yeah. or m- maybe um, mauritius off madagascar which mm. is like where there's all these animals that don't exist anywhere else like i think it's just sort of evoking all those kind of things because also meant to be a super tiny place like yeah some of the wizards just go for a walk and come back around the other way they're like yeah, yeah this island is tiny so yeah i think all of those things are in its dna and mm. i don't i don't think it's meant to be tasmania but it, it's, yeah it's probably in a similar position Um, As long as it's near Darwin, I'm cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for your sake, Liz, we're going to settle on near Darwin. All right. Yeah. Magic Island is near Darwin. It's on the, well, would that be, that would be on the Hubwoods side of 4 Don't get turtle opening with me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, you can't use northwest, south and east. They just don't work. Is is the sunlight blinking off a a closed eye in the long history of and then he turned? No. Oh, Liz. So- no, it's blinking off an island, Hubwoods, oh, yeah. that yes. sits on the back of four elephants that sits on a giant turtle going through space, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> I love that I now know how to troll you when I want to. <laughs> uh, listeners, it's that easy. Please don't do that. Um, now, the, the, <laughs> the other thing I like in this is he's just sort of taken this evolution theme as an excuse to do any kind of evolution joke he can think of. Mm. So he's got like the, the T-Rex kind of dinosaur thing that comes out of the forest that's clearly eaten the egregious professor of cruel and unusual geography. And then just as it's about to eat Mrs. Whitlow, it spontaneously evolves into a chicken and the wizards all use their prepared fireballs to roast it. And they have all those jokes about, yeah, it's visions based on movement. It's like, oh, so what, do we just wait until it runs into a tree? And you're like, yeah, that is... That is 100% nonsense. Mm. Uh, yeah, so he just takes the opportunity to have a few good digs at Jurassic Park there, which I quite enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, nobody wants to listen to Ponder and his ideas about evolution. They're all like, what are you talking about? We don't get it. Um, Would you want to listen to the person who is telling you that you can't enjoy all of these plants that are suddenly making food you like? Well, he wasn't saying you can't enjoy them. He was just trying to explain that that's what it doesn't hearing, make any though. sense. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Because they don't want to think it, about it. But it tracks, right? There, I mean, the arguments that the the um, wizards used are the same ones that, like, the Catholic Church used when Darwin talked about evolution. It's like I'm not related to any apes, yeah. um, I except have, he just I get invited extends to weddings them. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, Pratchett sort of makes it very Pratchett, but yeah. So it it it's mapping yeah. still. And he gets a few, he gets a couple of sneaky little Dawkins references in from when Dawkins was like useful, <laughs> like back when he Relevant. was, back when he was writing about just about evolution and it yeah. was it, good stuff. Cause there's one bit where he goes, Oh, it all just seems so selfish to me. And it's like, Oh yes, I see what you did there. I'm also not sure how far this story spread, but I think it's worth mentioning that this podcast is taking place a few days after the, the baboons in Sydney happened. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Don't, you might need to explain that. I don't know how widespread that has gotten. Oh, just suddenly on Twitter, people are like, oh, there's baboons outside the Royal Alfred Hospital in Sydney. 
And I was like, all ready for it to be a hoax or whatnot. And then video emerged and there's just three baboons outside the hospital. And then the story just got progressed. Like there's always a sad undercurrent of like where they come from. But it turns out that it was actually a male baboon and his two wives um, going to the hospital for his vasectomy. Why like, did they take that? To a human hospital. But the wives are like comfort ones and, and there's all the jokes about that. They're making sure he gets it done. And, uh, yeah, but, oh, okay. Yeah. But, I yeah. did see somebody on Twitter say, well, my new euphemism for when you have to go fast is uh, like a baboon running from a vasectomy. <laughs> 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 like, okay. All right. Um, yeah. Weird. So weird. Uh, it's very 2020 vibes. Oh, yeah, yeah. We live in the bizarre timeline. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so just too many weird things Pretty happening. quickly. Mm. Mm. Well, the other thing that happens is after they have this argument and they eat the chicken dinosaur, uh, that uh, night falls and Ponda realizes not only are they very far from home geographically, they are thousands of years in the past. Um, and they never say how many, which I think is good because it keeps the book relevant as mm. we constantly find more evidence that in Australia, you know, the, the human history of Australia goes back more and more tens of thousands of years. Like I think the biggest estimate is about 120,000 perhaps as a, as a maximum number. So it's, it's a long time. Mm. So I like that he doesn't ever specify how many thousands of years. Mm. Yeah. That was, that, that was good. Um, but then, horny plants. Horny plants. We'll get to the horny plants. We'll get to the it's horny plants. Too it's long to so get to the long. horny plants. Do you just want to talk about them now? No, no we'll get to, we'll get to them in good time. Okay, all right. But that time should be soon. So, uh, well, Mad takes Rincewind to the tiny outback town of Didjabringabirlong, um, which <laughs> which is a thing you can actually get on placemats and and other things in Australia. Like that's a it's a real fake Australian town name, so to speak. <laughs> Um, Genuine fake. Dibbler would be proud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they kind of talk about how it never rains again, some more, and that they do have rivers, but the rivers don't have any water in them, which is a very Still real <laughs> outback Australian thing. <laughs> yep. Yes. We've, we've been through many mm. droughts recently in many parts of the country and, and many fires as well as I'm sure listeners will have heard about. Yeah. So, um, in relation to the fires and water, I remember reading there was, uh, in some town, there were people stranded and they said they put a call out for the necessities being like, um, food, clothes and beer. Um, so, you yep. know, accurate nailing it, Terry. Yeah. Still, still relevant. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Some stereotypes are stereotypes, sadly, because they are based in truth. Yeah. Um, that is that is the way of stereotypes. Many of them are not useful, but many of them come from a place of reality. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's. But I, I kind of liked how oh, this guy named Crocodile, obviously Crocodile Dundee reference, but then he talks it, like Offler. It's an actual crocodile, mm. but then there's all these like sort of anthropomorphic animals yeah. who live there. Like there's the crocodile, there's some kangaroos, there's some sheep, there's a big guy who grabs Rincewind, who it turns out is a wombat, mm. and it's never explained why there are these people. I mean, I'm assuming this is a Tank Girl reference. Because if you've read the comic or you've seen the film, in Tank Girl happens in this sort of, you know, post-apocalyptic future and her, her boy, part-time boyfriend, uh, and friends, a, a couple of them are, are like mutant kangaroos mm. who are like humanoid kangaroos. So I, I, I think maybe that's partly it. I don't know. There's no other, there's no explanation or, or, or rationale for it. No, I'm into it. I like it. Let's make it canon. Okay, sure. <laughs> But it's also like, it's also very early Mad Max. Like it's, mm. it's very, it, um, Barter Town from Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome. You know, it's, it's, it's like that kind of place, but it's also like a real small outbook, outback town. Does the one that walk on two legs or on four legs? No, on two legs. Cause it like grabs him with a big meaty hand and he's big like a troll. Which mm. if a wombat turned into a person is what they would be like. Absolutely. Do all wombats have a pouch? 
Or yeah, it, they're marsupials. Or is well, it just the women? Though? No, the female wombats have a pouch. Okay, because I was going to say, like, if it's standing up on two legs, because their pouches are backwards, so it'd be like a useless pouch because it would just be upside down if they're standing up because it's it's not like kangaroos where it's at well, the top. It's the other way around yes. so that they don't fill their pouch oh, with dirt while they're digging. That's true. I'd forgotten about that. But I feel like if they can evolve like fingers and stand up on their back legs, maybe they can also come up with some way to resolve that i don't know well i guess if they're not like because they wouldn't dig like that they'd use utensils so they could have a, like a kangaroo pouch i mean they don't say that they're naked i mean all, all they really got to do is wear clothes and then they could just have a you know a fake pouch like a artificial yeah, but, like it would still render their original pouch useless <laughs> it'd be so gross having a pouch i'm sorry <laughs> would it though yeah like because it'd be all moist and stuff inside it's gross like an armpit, but like all of just the pit bit touching itself. <laughs> I love how much you've thought about this. Like oh, kangaroos ones are so gross because like they give birth to mm-hmm. their tiny, not ready to be out in the world thing because it's pretty much an incubator in there as well. Yeah. So it'd be full of all like the gross. It's like an organic humidity crib. Yuck. Look, I was a premature baby. I spent time in a humidity crib. Yeah, but like it was Imagine if Yeah, and of- yuck, Ben. Yuck. <laughs> Imagine if the humidity crib I've been trying to bring it up this was whole time. actually a part of your mum giving you a warm hug and looking after you. I think that's kind of delightful. It's just because it's like dirty. <laughs> <laughs> it's dirty and it's humid and yes. I don't like it. Um well look. Rinse wind. <laughs> uh avoids getting into a fight. Well, he doesn't avoid getting into a fight. He avoids like being part of the couch. fight. Uh, because Mad comes into the bar and has a fight with the wombat and the other people. Uh, and then Rinswin proceeds to get drunk on the Forexian beer, which mm. he feels like is very weak and, and you know, clear. clear, but gets him very drunk. Again, Terry Pratchett, absolutely, this would have happened to him. Continue. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then, uh, he like sings a song and he makes a bet with some shearers. It's like, what? You get paid to just, I can beat that. I can do better than that. Um, and, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not good, but he also absorbs, like, he's got a talent for languages. It's the one thing he's ever been good at. And he just, this night when he gets drunk in the pub, he just learns all the Forexian slang. He just gets right on it. He knows all the words. He understands. He doesn't like them. He thinks they're nonsense, <laughs> but he gets it. Um, and then the next day he's got to go through with this bet because everyone's like, dude, you bet this thing. And it's the Shearers and, um, one of whom is called Daggy, um, which is a terrible name for a Shearer. Uh, or anyone who works with sheep. Um, super appropriate sometimes. But when he wakes up with his hangover, he invents the cork hat, which I thought was great, like a wizard hat with corks on. Genius. It's just one of the other things I constantly remember from this book. Um, and Because it's uh, a visual of Australia from the outside world again. I know. I know. It's so good. It's so Barry McKenzie, you know? Like, it's 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 strange. Do that they the, work? That and the Bursa Surfing, those are the two I put together. Birth, yeah. No, that's, that's a different word that means something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Into a pouch. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, but, but he does, he does go through with the bet. And he wins because Scrappy turns himself into a ram. And no, uh, we're missing the best bit. Oh, I'm You're sorry. Skipping over. Okay, so That's he makes true. a bet with with them that for 500 squids, which I don't know if it's literal squids or if it's like money, that he can beat their best shearer at sheep shearing. Yeah. And so they get their best guy who's done like 50 sheep in an hour one time. And so they get him this this sheep, and he goes, "Oh, well, bring me a, a mm. mirror and some some nice scissors and things." And so there's this great sequence where the He's sat this sheep up in a chair and is giving it the proper hairdressing treatment. He's asking him, 
how its day went, what its weekend plans are, and there's just in between the sheet going, <laughs> which is exactly like me at the hairdresser because I just do not know how to make the conversation and I don't know where to look in the mirror. Like, should I be looking at me? Should I be looking at them? Should I be looking downwards? Should I? What if I accidentally look at what they're doing to my hair? Do I have to make a face of approval? Like, it's just so complicated and I can really relate to this sheep that just wants to just have its usual and be gone but yeah but um everyone doesn't react great to it they're like that's not how you shear sheep the one shear is like that sheep was beautiful (laughs) (laughs) this is is this the real reason why you grow your hair so long so you don't have to go to the hairdressers very often i mean i do go every six months or something but yes if i had to go i assume like if you have short hair you have to go quite regularly you do do, yeah. yeah yeah but i also have a good relationship with my hairdresser where we understand how much to talk Mm. So okay, right, okay, that's good. I, you know what, the, when reading this sequence, I had one of those. I was today years old when I learned this sort of moments, because one of the things Rincewind says to the sheep is, uh, "And uh, anything for the weekend, sir." And I discovered that that was a euphemism used in barber shops to ask a customer, "Did they want to buy any condoms?" What? Oh, really? Yeah. Do you want something for the, a little something for the weekend? Meant? Do you want? Do you want some condoms? We'll sell some to you on the sly. From your hairdresser, <gasps> the yeah, place apparently. where all the pointy, punctury things are. Yeah, but well, they don't. They, no, don't, they don't put punch- them in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like a condom for your hair, sir? <laughs> <laughs> They're not like that guy on you know that who puts one over his head. You know, as a party <laughs> trick. No. So I thought I was like wild, what? amazing. Yeah. I did not know that. There you go. The poor sheep. <laughs> uh, well, it, which kind of makes sense because some barber shops would have also been like a drugstore or a chemist, mm, right? Sure. He wins the bet, uh, and the shearers give him a horse as a prize because they don't have the 500 squids to mm. pay him. And the horse is very short, as we realize, the readers. And as I think Rincewind realizes, but then he behaves as if he doesn't. It's scrappy again, mm. uh, transformed into a horse because, and the reason the horse is so short is something else I'd forgotten. In the man from Snowy River, they describe the horse that he rides as being like half the height of a normal racehorse. Like it's a very small horse that he rides down the mountain. So this is, this is why, but it's comically short and he goes off towards, like a dashed horse. he wants to go to bugger up because he's heard that's the city that has a port. Uh, and he thinks that's how he's going to get home to Ankh-Morpork. So he rides off. Um, and, uh, basically becomes the man from Snowy River. <laughs> he enacts the entire poem. He meets up with some people who are like, have you seen the, the cult from old remorse rather than old regret? Uh, and ends up riding down a sheer cliff and up a sheer cliff. He basically turns into a Warner Brothers cartoon character at this point. I could just imagine him clinging to this horse upside down on the, on the cliff. Um, very silly. Uh, and has a few other, like, I'm just going to shorthand this because, like, we can come back and talk about our favourite bits later. But he basically just goes through all the pseudo-Australian nonsense that you can imagine along this <laughs> trip. He meets drop bears. He meets some budgerigars. He comes across a country windmill that, importantly to the plot, such as the plot is, is not drawing up any water anymore. Um, and when he digs for water, the water seems to drain away from where he digs a hole. But also, he finds the horseman, he does the whole man from Snowy River thing, and then he ends up next to a billabong where he sees somebody stealing a sheep. Mm. But he's dug a hole to try and find some water for the sheep that are there because there's no water. And the, um, the the guy who's stealing the sheep hears this disembodied voice and thinks it's a ghost and runs away. And then as Rincewing comes out of the hole and tries to get the sheep out of the bag... The three troopers arrive and he gets arrested. And I just, th- that whole sequence is just so full of just, just nonsense, just Australian nonsense. So much of it drawn from 
the songs I grew up singing and learning, it was just a, it's an interesting experience to watch or read a piece of media where people are saying the things and speaking in the way that you speak and the way that, that you grew up. Because even in, on Australian television, that's actually quite rare because mm. most of our television comes from the UK and from the US. Um, a, a lot of our media is very, you know, it comes from overseas. And uh, I've had that experience a few times recently where I've watched something and gone, hey, they're talking the way I actually talk. And it's just, it's kind of nice. I always hear it and I'm like, well, this feels a bit wrong. Like for the first little while, it just feels kind of a little bit jarring. And mm. then you sort of settle into it. But yeah, I, I do, I, I do get that feeling. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. This is nice, but I've been holding on to my complaints about Waltzing mm. Matilda for, for a little bit. <laughs> okay. And, let it out, Liz. Okay. So, um, two things. Um, Pancho Re- Patterson getting a whole lot of good representation in this. Cause like mm. there's the man from Snowy River and then he also wrote Waltzing Matilda. Uh, which is an interesting backstory about actually being about a sheep shearing strike and a man that got chased by the police um, ended up shooting himself, all that. But as to the lyrics themselves, this has always bothered me. The troopers come down, one, two, three, and they go, where's that jolly jumbuck you've got in your tucker bag? They know where it is. Like, why are they asking? Well, I always assumed he's, like, hidden the tucker bag. No, like... Because he's seen them coming. Where's no? that jolly jumbuck you've got in your tucker bag? But it's, like, right there. And then, Well, fair. Yeah. yeah. And is it... Dead or is it just like an alive sheep in his tucker bag? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Cause like, you don't, I, cause how I hard d- would it be to stuff a sheep into a Oh, tucker pretty bag? difficult. If it's a, like oh, a maybe lamb. If it's a small one, yeah. yeah. Is yeah. it a jumbuck like a, an adult I, sheep though? I thought so. I thought that's what jumbuck meant. But I mean. It's a jolly jumbuck too. Well, yeah. Why? Mm. I mean, I wouldn't be jolly if someone was stuffing me into a bag. My cat tolerates it. <laughs> you put oh. your cat in, in a, a cat in the bag. Uh, cat in the bag. Uh, I let him out again. <laughs> uh, yes, do you put him in good. the bag and then go? Ooh, is he in the bag or not? Is he alive or dead? Ooh, we don't know. Is that is that what happens? Right, is, is what's going to have to happen, I guess. Oh no! Oh, I and then he meows, nothing. and you're like, "Well, there's your answer." I actually, I've never actually had to put him in a bag, but a lot of people put their cats in pillowcases when they have to put them in a cat carrier because it's easier to put them because like they can't spray their legs out but then mm. you have to get them in the pillowcase in the first place it's true all right okay i guess what i'm saying is i could shove ass mob into a tucker bag okay yeah yep don't though he wouldn't be jolly yeah. about it though no. no no he'd be indifferent about it really well noodle would be very upset about it indeed there would be lots of claws involved i imagine that's why i just kind of accepts his fate he's like oh i guess i live here now <laughs> i guess this is where i am now yeah hmm. okay yeah, Waltzing Matilda is an interesting one, though, as, a, as a text, because, <laughs> which I think it's good that it's investigated here, because I always thought, why did he jump into the billabong? It was just a shape, but I guess it was a big, bigger deal back I then. Had, I had to keep reminding myself, actually, this is something that's important to bring up. For starters, he, he calls it a billabong rather than a billabong for <laughs> no readily apparent reason. I had to keep reminding myself, but they don't have any water in them, mm. because there's no water anywhere. Like it's all underground, mm. and very literally, and the only pond that you see, or like like a little little sort of waterhole, is underground. It's in like a it's sheltered uh, underneath. So the guy can't jump in the billabong because well, it's not there. I mean, in the last continent, I guess it's Terry Pratchett hasn't really fallen on either side of the fence necessarily because Brinsman keeps falling into waterholes. Oh, well, that's true. We keep, we keep making most of them. We keep digging holes in the ground to find water for these poor animals. Well, yeah, but like there's the a repeated joke water, about yeah. him just falling into them. But oh, I mean, well, maybe that's, that's before. Because the kangaroo is leading. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. But sometimes they <laughs> don't have Consistency, Pratchett. Come on now. What's happening here? I don't know. No, it's fine. Uh, yeah. But he gets arrested. He's taken off to bugger up. And then we go back to Mono Island and your horny plants. Yes. They're <laughs> not my horny plants. They're everyone's horny plants. Uh, but look. But I mean, most they, of all each other's horny plants. They find all these weird plants, including, and I think it's my favorite, the, the, the ship plant mm-hmm. that's like a giant mm-hmm. pumpkin that grows into a ship, which is very, uh, it's a little bit Cinderella, isn't yeah. it? Which I quite liked. I enjoyed how much detail he puts into what's what bits grown out of what including the fact that it's grown this sort of misshapen jelly baby like figurehead at the front and also how that wasn't intentional and the god's no. actually a little bit upset about it like oh they keep doing this but rid kelly's like response to it is perfect he's like this is clearly a trap aren't mm. there plants that eat people and you're like yeah that makes sense like because mm. he's kind of got enough of an idea of evolution out of ponder's rantings that he's like things have a certain shape for a reason we want a boat this thing's clearly grown into a boat so we go aboard and it eats us mm-hmm. and that's when the god arrives in front of them and we've kind of known the god was there without having met him and he turns up looking like a bald man with a big white beard so yeah. it looks like Charles Darwin. Okay, mm. so there's two jokes in this book about feminism. Mm. One is with him where he says, he looks at himself and he's like, oh, beard, eh? Oh, patriarchy, I suppose. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like he's, right. he's really like, oh, okay. <laughs> and the other one early on, which kind of irritated me a little bit, where uh, Pratchett talked about feminist scholars and men not having the housework oh, gene. The footnote. Yeah, oh, where yeah. they where they can't actually see... The washing up or something like that. I, well, because he, he's specific. Like, no, that's not how it works, in, in my edition, certainly, like he specifically refers to the wizards lacking that gene. And I mm. think that's like a piss take of the men's excuse. And it reminded oh, it me is, of absolutely, yeah, the really old, uh, I think it was a comedy company sketch where they do this like really earnest ad for like raising awareness. And it's like, domestic blindness is an affliction that affects nine out of 10 men mm-hmm. in the household. And then they try to raise money. It's hilarious. <laughs> and so we've always, we've always referred to it in my family. If you can't find something, we refer to it as domestic blindness. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's right there. Yeah. Um, but yes, thing, I take your point. It's yeah. a weird thing how like mums can actually find things easier. Cause I remember as a child, I would look cause my mom would be like, no, make sure you've looked properly before you ask me. Mm-hmm. And I would properly search through a drawer and I'd go fetch it from her other room and she'd like grumble. And then in like three seconds, she's found the thing. There's definitely a childhood dimension to it, but there is also a massive gendered dimension. I mean, like mm. people, and people do say things like, oh, did you have a proper look or did you have a boy look? Mm. And you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> I'm called out. Oh, no, <laughs> no, it's looking. It's looking. Um, we missed <laughs> The other thing we haven't talked about is the fact the that- The horny plants. <laughs> <laughs> You said we, we just talked about the plants. You didn't talk about why they're horny. Okay, all right. You talk about the horny plants. I don't want to. I'm shy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so the plants have been making seeds, as we mentioned earlier, and yeah. the, the god is quite annoyed about it. He doesn't understand what they're doing, and the wizards have sort of cottoned on to what's going on. It's that they're trying to reproduce. Mm. And so the god actually has a lot of work he has to do throughout because instead of animals reproducing themselves he just waits for them to sort of wear and tear a bit and then he'll just make a better version of it having learned the mistakes from the previous ones so you end up with this delightful scene where the wizards who are basically (laughs) a whole bunch of giggly 12 year olds and also bashful are forced to try and explain sex to to the god who is like oh that that doesn't sound like it's gonna work but like it's efficient if like an elephant can grow another elephant but how does it work they're like oh it starts off small and gets Mm. bigger he's like i don't know it's hard enough to get them to waggle their ears like Mm. i don't really know so how does it physically work and then 
all of them sort of just look away and don't want to talk about it. And then the lady shows up. Mrs. Mrs. Whitler. Yeah. And she knows the score. Yeah. I like, just love it because she's so proper the entire time until she has a little sight and like a giggle with this guard and explains how things work, how the world <laughs> works. Yeah. 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 She knows. Yeah. She knows. <laughs> like, he being like, is there a Mr. Whitlow? And everyone's just... <laughs> yeah, nobody knows. Well, this is what the other... die of? This, this actually... There was something weird, though, here, is that the, the god has no idea about sexual reproduction. But he makes all these constant references to the fact that he used to live in a place where there were other gods who had human worshippers. I'm like, mm. who were these human beings who didn't reproduce sexually? What the fuck is going on there? Well, I mean, he could just not pay attention to be too busy guess, trying to make inflammable. I mean, that is the vibe that he gives off. I guess that's true. He probably was just like, I don't really care where humans come from as long as they worship me. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll buy that. And then he's come to this island. He's like, I'm going to start again. I'm going to figure out how to make things properly. Mm. And yeah. So, yeah, it is hilarious. And just the imagery of his workshop where he's got, like, a half-assembled elephant and he's, like, getting into its guts and moving things around. And there's this biological scaffolding. I was just, oh, so cool. Box mm. of antennae. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and he's, he's addicted to beetles. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> like, just makes me feel better. Yeah. And he just, whenever he does it, he makes one, it goes and just finds its space in the collection. It's great. I love that. Oh, mm. it was so much fun. Was there a, a particular gag that I was missing with the fact that he was only three feet tall when he manifests as like his little Charles Darwin form? I genuinely don't know. I think it's like Buffy, like when the fear demon Gaknar is is it did super like scary that. but tiny. Like it's just like a oh, got it slightly wrong. Doesn't quite. I did make a note that it, it reminded me of that. Yeah. Now this this is where it, it, this god also has the weird sort of property where he's like, yeah, I don't really believe in gods. He's an atheist god, mm. and he doesn't have any worshippers either. So it's like, where does how does that work on the disc world? And nobody's quite sure. Even Pratchett in the text just says, yeah, that's supposed to be how it works. But this guy doesn't seem to need any. And they're like, that's weird. The Beatles. Um, yeah, the Beatles believe in him. And this is where Ponder's like, I don't want to go with you on the boat. Mm. I want to hang out here. Like, this is my chance to find out how stuff works. And he's gung-ho about it. And he's, like, making all these suggestions. And the god's like, yeah, I'm going to make, like, this ultimate organism. And Ponder's like, oh, like a new version of human beings. That's cool. Um, I want to see it. And he's like, yeah, here it is. And he sees it. And he runs away screaming because it's a cockroach. Mm-hmm. And he's... and it, and. It, I, I, in my head, I kind of imagine that it was some sort of like ultimate giant bipedal intelligent cockroach. But I think actually it was just the idea that the god thought a cockroach could be the pinnacle of life that freaked him out. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like got all of the um, things that the god respects and likes. It's kind of beetle-esque and it will last forever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But also I think that it's just a comment on Sydney cockroaches because <laughs> uh, if you've never been to Sydney, they are as large as surfboards. They are huge. They can fly. That broke me when I found out they could fly. They can fly. They crawl up the wall and turn their heads to look at you like a Chucky doll. Um, they do. It's a lot. I mean, look, having lived in northern New South Wales, I can tell you that everywhere north of Sydney, everybody just accepted there will be cockroaches. Like you put baits out and you do stuff just to keep the numbers down and you just leave the spiders to do their thing, but you never get rid of them all. You just have to deal with it. What eats them? Do bats eat them? No, mostly spiders. Yeah, spiders, probably cats might. I don't my cat eating a cockroach. Like frogs and stuff would if they could catch them, Mm. like Mm. toads. 
Cane toads probably eat cockroaches. For the squeamish in you, uh, fast forward probably a minute, but um, I was staying in Sydney one night and woke up because a cockroach crawled across my face and tried to get into my nose. Got a rude surprise when it couldn't fit and then like jumped off. But it was so, because I was so asleep. I just like woke up and like bat my face, but it had gone by the time. Ugh, Why would gross. it want to be in your nose? I don't know. Saw an opening, went for it, didn't fit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so that those are that's that's don't, what. Please don't take that about. bit of audio out of context. Um, that's, that could be disastrous. <laughs> I feel like we got um, Australia yeah, got get mocked a lot about stuff, but the stuff about insects, like we deserve to be mocked about that. It's just it's mm. there's a lot of dangerous creatures like. Did it, did you have the story at school where like someone got bitten by a white tail spider and so they progressively had to have more and more of their leg amputated? Like that was the one that they told us to make us always shake our shoes before we put them on. Well, we didn't have white tails where I grew up, so no, I didn't. I I, I didn't hear that, but I, but they are a thing. They're yeah. a weird spider. Yeah, stonefish, which are like the color of sand and like wait around for you to step on them and to to kill you and the for po- some reason. It, the pain is so bad. People have apparently drowned themselves. Yeah. Uh, rather than, you know, get to shore and keep feeling that much better. Like, that's, wow. that's dark. That's, that's unnecessary. Dark. Well, I read about those and then I was scared of them like all the time. And then I found out they weren't in our part of Australia. I'm like, okay, good. That, the, that's all right. And, no, yeah. they lived in my part of Australia when I grew up. <laughs> um, Did you wear a, shoes at the beach? Uh, I just didn't Janus. go into the yeah. sea. There's a great sequence in Last Chance to See, which is Douglas Adams's book about going around the world visiting animals that are nearly extinct where he's going to go to the island of Komodo to see Komodo dragons. And it is one of the only places on earth that has a higher concentration of deadly venomous snakes than Australia. Um, And so he goes to see a snake expert in Mel, I think he's in Melbourne. And uh, he's like, what do I do if I get bitten by a snake? And he's like, you die. Mm. Don't get bitten by a snake is my advice. (laughs) And and he just keeps talking to him and he just hates everything about snakes. And he goes, oh, you hate snakes. He's like, what? And, And he says something about the ocean. He's like, oh, do you like going to the ocean? He says, no. It's full of even more poisonous things. Mm-hmm. Like you hate the ocean. <laughs> like, oh, it just confirms every stereotype about how deadly things are in Australia. We've blue bottles, don't we? If that's the thing. Like, yeah, Portuguese yeah. man of wars. Yeah. Oh, that won't kill you, but they're, that's they nasty. will hurt you. You probably want to drown yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah I've been, like, no. <laughs> no. That's the stonefish alone. That's their special yeah, thing. That's this. That's their claim to fame. Look, let's get away from the deadly animals. We'll talk more about that, I yeah. think. But let's get back to Rincewind, who is in a prison cell, a jail cell in uh, in Bugger Up, waiting to be hanged. But everybody's like, what a hero of the bush, mate. Like, you, you beat the shearers and you, like, stole a, a sheep and now you're going to be hanged. Oh, this is great. You're going to have a famous last stand. You're going to be in all these ballads. And uh, what's your name? And they call him Rinso, which mm-hmm. I thought. Oh, so Absolutely. Very perfection. accurate. <laughs> so accurate. Um, it's the same amount of syllables. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it is. That's true. Um, and uh, Death turns up to say hello. And he's like, oh, am I going to die? He's like, no, I just thought I'd say hello. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and he's got some prawns. <laughs> Why not? Uh, but he escapes because um, Tinhead Ned, who had previously escaped, has written something on the roof of the cell above the bed, which mm. I thought was genius. Mm. Um, and he realizes you can lift the door off its hinges and put it back again. So he does that. He escapes. Um, he runs into Fergo Dibbler yeah. in one of the more memorable sequences of the book, not only because Fergo Dibbler embodies everything terrible about Australian culture. And in fact, um, there are some people who have suggested he is directly based on the politics of Pauline Hanson, who oh, had first risen to fame uh, slightly before this book had come out, like oh, her first campaigns were in there. the late nineties. 
Yeah, it would have been nice. I still, I still. Dancing with the Stars has a lot to answer for, uh, and Sunrise. It's like, it's like, it's the same thing as uh, what's his name having Donald Trump on the Tonight Show and like patting mm-hmm. him on the head, like he's just like a cute idiot, and you're like, yeah, he's president now, mm-hmm. dickhead. Um, yeah, so it's just anyway, but yeah, he embodies all of that horror. Well, it's not horror, is it? Like, it's too mundane for that. I mean, it is horrible, but it's just. Like, this is one of the things in the book where it's interesting to see Pratchett just sort of unflinchingly go, look, I'm putting all this funny little nonsense stuff in, but also there's this side to Australian mm. society. And he doesn't pull any punches with it, I didn't think. Like, mm. everybody gets a serve. Like, it's a people are coming here to steal our jobs, which is interesting in a country that only has accidental immigration, mm. <laughs> like 4X. But also, you know, same opinion of the indigenous population. Mm. And you're like, this guy's fucked mm. and he's like the least sympathetic dibbler of them all i think mm. but also it's nice because there's the long list of dibblers mm. which i quite enjoyed although some of those maybe i don't know if they have stood the test of time in terms of cultural sensitivity but you know i mean again they're all fictional but are they but they are drawing on very direct racial and cultural stereotyping it was fun but it's also like do we really need this mm. i don't know yeah no it, uh yeah, as as was noted, uh, Pratchett is does a lot of things well, and I think race isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah. I think it's why he tries to avoid doing it most yeah, of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. As an author, it's always important to recognize your limitations because mm. I don't believe you can only write about things that you know. Mm. But I think you do realize when you're writing about things. As someone who's written a story that is largely about Aboriginal Australians, uh, as an episode of Night Terrors, I went into that going, I can't just write this. Mm. Like I feel like for the kind of story I want to tell, I probably factually do know probably enough to do this reasonably well, but I can't just do it. And I need to go and talk to someone and, and get their advice about how best to do it and what would be all right. And and so I did. But that was that's a lot of extra work. Mm. And if you want to do it, you've got to put that work in. And sometimes that's easier than at other times. And mm. you recognize that that's too hard, so I shouldn't do it at all. Mm. And I think... In this book, again, you know, the, the lack of Aboriginal characters mm. is probably Pratchett's way of going, I know that I, I probably can't do that right and that, that that's a big thing and if I touch it, I have to go right into it and then that's going to be quite difficult to keep funny. Mm. So mm. let's just not go there. Mm. That's the kind of impression I got. Because it also it's not clear what the history between the sort of immigrant, more Porkian Forexians and the local inhabitants is. Mm. It's not clear that they've even really met each other very often. Um, Doesn't I mean, they say it's a big jail, though? Isn't there a line in there about Well, they talk about the country being a big jail because the storm around the outside mm, okay. of it means that if you get there, you can't leave. Mm. Okay, so it's not exactly the same. Yeah. And Rincewind hardly meets any, you know, white folks in in the, you know, deep outback. Right. It's only when he starts heading towards, you know, quote apart unquote civilization. Ma- mad. Apart from Mad, yeah. who, you know, obviously is out there, you know, stealing his hazeline or whatever you're going to call mm. it. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I think he sort of dodged it. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting. It's quite a generous, uh, reading, but I can see, I can see the working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense. I don't, I mean, buy, like, I don't it. know if that's intentional, but I think he did yeah. dodge it by not having that in there yeah, pra- yeah practically it, that's how it functioned um yeah. whether or not it's an intentional is yeah to be seen yeah yeah he bails people up for hay 
<laughs> very good. Thank yeah. you. That's very good. I was uh, also listening, but I was like, <laughs> <laughs> were you the, <laughs> you're talking about, I don't know, horny plants. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Rincewind because he has some adventures in Bugger Up. Um, he runs from the troopers, uh, cause they find him. Um, first of all, he hides in the uh, opera house kitchen <laughs> where someone's a- trying to make a dessert to name after the, the visiting opera star, but she does not have a very appetizing sounding name. Um, but it's the butt of some jokes. It's true. But Rincewind manages to come up with a solution, further cementing his uh, Australian bloody hero legend status mate. Which is, you know, basically how it works out. That was the that was the worst Australian accent I've ever done. <laughs> that, was, that was not bad, um, in my opinion. But uh, I, I, a good place at Hayu. Why do I have to? <laughs> they would. The watch arrived, but they let him escape because they want to have a good chase, mm-hmm. and they're 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 as impressed with him as everybody else. I, I do love that. Box. Yeah, yeah. And this is where Scrappy says, like, "Yeah, mate, you're becoming the the perfect four in hero. That's what we've been trying to mold you into, so mm. that you can do this job and fix things." But that's also where he reveals to him, you're not going to escape on a boat here, man, because like, mm. there's no, you can't get anywhere. Like you can go a little bit out and, you know, sail your boat to another part of Forex, but you can't leave. It's lost. Um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he's like, oh, well, I'm, I still don't want a part of this. He runs off and this is where he gets stuck in what they've referred to several times up to this point, the galah, mm. <laughs> uh, which is spelt like the bird rather than gala, which, Turns out to basically be the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Mm. And he runs into Letitia, the desert queen, um, and her friends who previously had found the opalized luggage and taken it with them. And uh, he sort of hangs out with them for a bit and then makes a run for it. And just as he's about to get caught by some troopers in an alleyway, the luggage arrives to save him. Mm. But not not looking quite the same as it used to. Mm. It's trunky. It is. I, this was this was so delightful. This whole bit, I just loved it so much. And Fury is an illustration of the little I have. Oh later. yeah, which we'll share with everyone. Yeah. yeah, as I said, I listened to it on audiobook, and uh, I remembered that you like to take a photograph with the book, so I did an illustration uh, <laughs> in lieu of being able to hold a book. Oh well, that's thank you much so much. And it is fabulous. It's, it's such it's a so good, good illustration. Um, yeah, little shoes, Tr- trunky, wearing all of the shoes. I, it was just. So nice. I have a, I have a massive rant about how Trunky is a trans icon. Let's do it. We'll hit it. This and is you, the time. Okay, great. You ready? You mm-hmm. ready for this? We're ready. Because I mean, as much as Pratchett tries, and obviously it's a Priscilla Queen of the Desert mm. thing, I think that he can't help himself because it's satire, that there's still like this undercurrent of laughing at men in dresses. Mm. He couldn't quite get away from that. But the thing I love about Trunky is... Oh, so... In order to sort of understand this fully, I need to backstep a little for anyone who's uh, not up on the Trans 101, and I'll speed through it as quick as possible, but essentially um, gender is arbitrary. Really important. It weaves through everything that we do. It's a really important social interaction. It influences us, but it's ultimately an arbitrary set of rules that we've just assigned to different shapes of the body. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are like, oh... You know, men have penises and women have vaginas. The quickest way I can explain it is like, if that were true, then we would have a different gender for all of the different intersex variations. And we don't. Uh, what we do instead is we give babies really brutal surgeries to make them conform to what we think 
men and women should look like. And so, I mean, that's a really good example of how gender is a social construct, right? So we're fitting our bodies to fit or fitting each other mm. into what we see gender as. So gender is this, this arbitrary social list of rules and regulations. And culturally, oftentimes we punish people who transgress that by making fun of them. And this whole trans women as men in dresses is a really common trope to punish any gender transgression. Now, the reason Trunky is incredible is because obviously it doesn't have any genitalia. Mm. Obviously, like, there's this really beautiful sort of nuance to it that I think Pratchett probably doesn't even realize where... You know, we don't even gender luggage in its pronouns. Its pronouns are it, which isn't a gendered pronoun. And yet, and yet, we still, I think even Pratchett does, kind of see luggage as masculine or male, which is why Rincewin basically makes fun of luggage when uh, it turns up with earrings and high heel shoes and a pierced lid. But there's this beautiful nuance and this beautiful play where even though luggage has been gendered by Rincewen and has been gendered, I guess, by us, doesn't want to kick off the shoes, mm. doesn't want to take off the dress or the earrings and absolutely refuses to take out the piercing. Mm. And so as much as gender is arbitrary, you know, luggage embodies this, this being drawn to it and this importance to it. And so being gendered from the outside and then transgressing that gendering, um, which is why I think luggage is like, a, a beautiful trans icon and why I have uh, done this illustration of it. Yeah. Excellent. That's my rant. Oh, that's I hope it. that was concise. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was concise. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I described that as a rant. It was kind of just that beautiful. Just, uh-huh. Thank thanks. you. Yeah. Thanks. A beautiful summary and like an ode to the joy of Trunky. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was there. I was there for Trunky who let's not forget is also have, has been opalized, mm. which is a thing that really happens. Like if you go to South Australia and you go to the South Australian museum, they have a big room where, you, where they have their sort of paleontology exhibition. And the key centerpiece of that exhibit is an elasmosaurus, which is like a plesiosaur, but with a really, really long neck. And it's a skeleton that has been opalized. The entire skeleton has been turned into opal through geological processes. And it's, beautiful it's one of the most amazing things you see and this has happened to the the luggage who's mm. been in the ground for a million years because you know Rincewin got separated from his luggage on his way to 4x and so you know has undergone a transformation as well like it's not just the piercing although you kind of get the impression that maybe it's lost the shell of opal um at By some time point it to go yeah but it definitely has it when when it comes out when it gets picked up by yeah. the t-shirt because they remark how beautiful and sparkly mm, it is. Mm, mm. So, yeah, it's hard to know exactly. It's not, not, I don't think, described in detail later in the book. But, yeah, that's kind of wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Why isn't everyone constantly trying to steal that opalized fossil? Well, because I imagine it, they'd try. Because <laughs> it, it's on legs and walking around and they're scared of it. No, and, no, in the museum. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't grew know. up in South Australia and I went to the museum a lot and that just completely... So it slipped my mind. I don't remember it at all. I'm going to have to go look at it I'm next pretty time. sure it's still there. No, as in, I 100% believe you. I just think it's because I'm just too fixated on two exhibits there. The, the tire-sized ammonite. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That a policeman found thinking it was a spare tire and it was actually just this huge ammonite. And then just like the human skeleton that is oh. just in there, just sitting on a chair. Donated by the medical school, which um doesn't seem ethical. No. No. I mean... 
Well, if yes, they donated it to science, then they, it is. Okay, like now it's ethical, but like back mm. in the day, they'd be like, this homeless oh, no. man died in the hospital and now his brain is in this jar. Oh, yeah. 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 That brings up something else about the novel I wanted to quickly mention is that it, one of the things about this that I kind of thought of was it's a little bit like steampunk, this version of Australia, mm. because it's got all the cool, funny bits that we like. All the larrikinism and the, you know, the shearers and the, and the, the weird animals and the deadly animals and the Mad Max stuff. But it just sort of ignores, for the most part, the racism and the, all the other stuff that's not great. So just like one. steampunk does, you mm. know, like it's like, yeah, let's, let's celebrate Victorian England, but mm. it was horribly misogynist and sexist and classist, um, classist and racist. Like it, it's not great. Every right? ist got to catch them all. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think the easiest line between satires of Australia to draw is between this and The Simpsons, mm. because that sort of takes a similar-ish view of, we're not even going to try. <laughs> we're just oh, going to- yeah. They were like, we're not even going to base this on the actual stereotypes. We're just going to mm. make shit up, which I think was why people were like, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is hilarious. Oh, it's very but funny. But it's also terrible. But it's also another way of ducking out of and actually authentically <laughs> engaging with what's going on. It's yeah. just like, no, we're just going to make it up. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Let's get back to the wizards. Yeah. We've left them on their boat. Cooling their heels soon. Uh, sailing off from the god's little island to wherever, the nearest other island, which they're pretty sure is 4X. And as they get closer, it is surrounded by this magical storm, which starts to make all the wizards irritable. And they start fighting with each other like they did in the bad old days of wizards assassinating other wizards. And they start casting spells by accident. And then the boat starts to ripen and break up. And they're forced to cling to the seeds, which had been previously mm. alluded to, which are sort of long and slightly kind of tapered at each end, um, but a bit taller than a, a human being. And then there's that great image of, I think, the Dean uh, doing like a death battle with one of them. And you oh, just yeah. have this image of it spinning over and over and over again. <laughs> just like Brilliant. A thing. Um, and they all sort of manage to cling to these things and get washed up on shore, except for the bursa who stands up on it. Hmm. And surfs his way in, which is just so magical. And like from, I remembered that there was a big surfing wizard thing, but I couldn't remember who it was. And it was just so perfect that it was the Bursa. And we can't forget that the great, uh, banter in the magical field Hmm. where all of the personalities get flipped essentially like oh, ponder yeah. gets really irritable hmm. um the dean gets very sort of compassionate or you know ridically is, is sort of trying to be a play peacemaker yeah. and the bursas like finally sort of manages to sort of spit out a coherent thought which was like we need to attack the the chair of indefinite studies we need to unite so that we can you know whoever it was yeah. um which was yeah one of my favorite bits was very well well done yeah yeah i really enjoyed that and then once they're on shore Things just get weirder. They all become a little bit unstuck in time because this newly birthed continent has a weird relationship with time and it starts to affect them all as magical people. Mrs. Whitlow gets just younger enough to be a babe, apparently. <laughs> Not for any good reason, but just because... Someone already hey, thought she was a babe. Well, that's true. Um, but they all sort of start getting younger. Some of them regress back to being a baby or six years old. Uh, the dean turns into a teenager for mm. a short period of a time. A teenager. A teenager, uh, which he always is mentally anyway. Mm. And uh, Ponda gets real old and has that moment of like, mm. I get it. Mm. Uh, and there's that footnote that says it'd be nice to say that this experience made Ponder nicer to old people, but it only lasted about five mm. minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, this is often the way. Uh, and I mean, every time I age rapidly, I I have a lot of empathy, and then suddenly it just evaporates, and yeah. it is always the way. Uh, but they all go back to their normal selves, except for the librarian who remains a 
tiny, cute orangutan baby. The best. Is there merch? Not specifically of the librarian uh, as a baby, but you can definitely buy a baby orangutan like plushie. Oh Mm. my god, it's so cute. But anyway, they they sort of trying to figure out what's going on. The bursar wanders off by himself because he's like, I don't need these idiots, and meets the creator spirit of Mm. Forex. And he just sort of stands there and takes it in and has this bliss moment where he's watching this, this creator draw the things in, in the style that really captures their essence in as simple a way as possible, but is undeniably the thing that it is. And it brings these different animals to life and he's drawing trees and birds because they realize there's nothing here. And it's because the things that will be here are in the process of being created. And it's just quite a beautiful moment for the bursa. I kind mm. of really enjoyed mm. that bit. I really appreciate how. It would have been so easy for Pratchett to go on about, oh, they're really simple drawings or whatever. And it's so clear that he has a really deep respect for them. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, obviously later on the, the joke about the wizards trying to basically mimic it or, or mm. create that and mm. them sort of messing it up. I really appreciate that. Pratchett obviously genuinely has a deep respect for Aboriginal folk and Aboriginal culture and has, has tried to at least to, um, engage with that in an authentic way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That really comes across, particularly in this end part of the book, mm. I think. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, back in Bugger Up, uh, the luggage or Trunky, sorry, I should, I should use their <laughs> preferred name. Trunky has saved Rinse Wind, but then opens up and out comes Nealette, sister of Nolene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, of course. This is so good. What a great name. She's been traveling with Letitia and what's it? What's that other? Darlene. Darlene. Think, yeah. yeah, that's right. Been traveling with them, but she's like, yeah, being a, as Rinse Wind puts it in sort of very English terms, female impersonators, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, look, you know, they are meant to be representing drag queens, yeah, I think. Yeah, and Priscilla. Um, but they're leaving out, which, which interestingly means that he's leaving out the third character from Priscilla, who is a trans person, right. as opposed to a drag queen. Mm. So it's, I don't know that that's any kind of conscious erasure there. I think he's just who doing knows? a gag. Yeah. But anyway, the, she's like, I just was hanging out with him because I needed a job and uh, my brother sort of stopped hanging out with him and uh, yeah, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it turns out her family owned the Rue Beer Company, hmm. which has been referred to a few times during the book. And they happened to be near the old or the new brewery that they built to try and replace the the old brewery. But it didn't work because they built it on maybe a sacred site. But when they consult the indigenous people of the area, they're like, no, this is like the least sacred site <laughs> possible. Please just dig it up and throw it in the sea. We don't care what you do with it. We don't want to have a bar of it. And weird stuff happens in there. They see some weird ghostly shapes. It starts to sink into the ground because the vanishing of the water is now starting to have an effect. Mm. And some of the buildings are becoming unstable. The brewery building slightly falls apart a bit, including some lamps which are still lit, which fall down and set the place on fire. Mm. But they escape through the cellar and come outside. And that's when Neilette mentions that there are wizards mm. in Bugger Up. And Rinswin's like, well, you've got to take me to meet them. <laughs> and they go and sneak into Bugger Up University, which is basically like Unseen University, but much smaller and made out of corrugated iron, <laughs> which I will, I love that so much. It's <laughs> so great. And they sneak in via the alleyway around the side. They're just about to knock on the door of the main building when Rincewind is suddenly summoned inside into the Bugger mm. Up University wizards summoning circle like a demon. Because they've been trying to get a demon to come and help them figure out where all the water's going because they've realized that something's wrong. What was it in the ritual of Ashkent? Ashkent? Ashkente? Yeah. yeah. Except they're not summoning death because they keep talking about hell and, and stuff. 
But I think it, this makes total sense. Like, Rince, this has happened to Rincewind before because mm. he's been you know, through this, all, all this interventional travel and such. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I kind of like that little detail. Mm. It was fun. I love that the Arch Chancellor of mm. Bugrup University is Rincewind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bill Rincewind, his long lost relative. And he's a bit older and he's clearly actually good at being a wizard. Mm. But otherwise, temperamentally, he's very much the same, which I kind of nice. It's just nice. And Why is I he like, not Rinso? Yeah. Or Raza. Because <laughs> um, he's the Arch Chancellor. Yeah, you Raza. You don't give your Arch Chancellor a nickname. Raza the Ar- Arch Chazza. When he was yeah. young, he's probably had a nickname. I imagine at this university they would. They seem to be very chummy. Mm-hmm. But I also Maybe. like how Rincewind's very like looks down on them still. Like he's still. Oh yeah, like you you haven't got a proper university, yeah, but yeah, I can yeah. see you doing your best. And yeah, then, yeah, and they're like. You what, mate? <laughs> yeah, I bet you Let me show you the tower. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of a couple of times in the book where that kind of that real uh, like, like cultural cringe, like that, like we're not shit mm. kind of attitude comes out. Like like the wombat in the bar who is like, oh, I suppose you're going to make some fun of how we talk and the fact that we have crappy beer that you don't like. Well, we also make these fantastic chardonnays. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that's like- so good. And that also feels like a precursor to the thief of time and um, mm. the guy who's who's like a bruiser and then he looks at an artwork and he's like, cool, blimey you know what i mean and he knows all about the art like it this yeah. very similar vibe i noticed when i was reading that yeah and actually that makes me think of damien callanan's the merger about a small town football team that was going to be forced to merge with another town's football team but to stave that off he um, recruits a bunch of refugees to come and join the team and teach them to play football and one of the running gags is that the football team uh, they're all like you know aussie blokes but they also all have these very classical arty interests. Like mm. they paint in Raphaelite style or they like know about epic poetry or they, they just know about all fine wines or whatever. So it's very intellectual whilst also being like absolutely the kind of stuff you would find in this book. So if you haven't seen that film, I, I recommend mm. it. It's, it's great. It's mm. really funny. But meanwhile, in the past, um, the wizards catch up to the bursa and this is where they just start screwing everything up because the creator's trying to draw his animals and his plants and they just can't help but stick their oar in and start mm. trying to draw mm. things because they look at his style of painting and like, don't you, oh, let me teach you about perspective. And you're mm. like, you jerks. And the bursa has these thoughts where he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And mm. he just articulates it. And even he doesn't know where those thoughts are coming from, but he's clearly become in tune with the place and gets it. And then these folks just turn up and he, and, and everything he hates about the wizards, which is so clearly articulated in that passage where it talks about how he can't stand Ridcully, just comes to the fore. And mm. I really, I really like the insight we got into the Bursa in this book. Mm. I like as well how, um, you know, stepping forward a little bit, like Rincewind, in order to access and release the wizards from the stalactites and stalagmites, he has to drink. And like, so there's this sort of this feeling of you need to actually have a little bit like your reality needs to be a little bit different in order Mm. to like actually engage and see the land and see the country, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Rincewind does it through alcohol is maybe a little problematic. Oh, of course. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think that's where it's going. You know, Mm. I think that's just something that probably nobody thought about, but it's, but it's, yeah, I agree. It's, it's that interesting sort of freeing yourself from the natural flow of time and space. Mm to engage with uh, a space that doesn't exist in the, that mm. quite that way. Uh, but while they're doing that, the other thing that happens in that scene, which is so cute, is uh, they find uh, his bag, the creator spirit's bag, and the librarian just upends it and starts going through stuff, <laughs> and he finds the bull roarer, and he's mm. like, this is so cool. He starts playing with it, and Ponder tries to get it off him, and he won't let him take it. Ponder also finds a boomerang, which is decorated in unusually bright colours, as opposed to the whites, reds, and blacks of most of the other paintings and drawings. 
But this is when Rincewind's meeting Bill Rincewind, mm. which is nice where they sort of both realize it and go, oh, mm. Rincewind's like, I don't think I've got any relatives. And he like, cause he's always had mm. that sort of weird kind of eternal champion kind of backstory where nobody's quite sure who his parents are or where he was born or, mm. or how. But now he's like, oh, I've got a relative. This mm. is new for me. So it grounds him a little bit more, but also his relatives very far away. Although that's a very traditional thing to have relatives. In Australia. In Australia. Mm. <laughs> Particularly if you're in some sort of soap opera. That's sort of, mm. it's it's got to happen at some point. But they decide, well, we'll show you and uh, let me show you what's happening to the land. We'll take you up the tower. Riz was like, oh, your tower. It's like two stories tall. And the local wizards are all like, oh, yeah, we'll show you up the tower. <laughs> and they do go up two stories. But then when they get to the top, it's like it's like two miles tall or mm. something. Like It's enormous. And it's he's like, like two novels tall. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's like, this is, okay, that's impressive. Uh, it is very dimensionally transcendental up there. Eventually, though, they, they sort of listen to him. They get him a bit drunk because he's scared of the heights. And he tells them about the wizardy, ghosty shapes in the brewery. They all go back there. They find the cavern underneath after a bit of searching and making sure that Rincewind is drunk enough. Not too drunk, but drunk enough, uh, which they kind of gauge by how willing he is to eat a pie floater. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and there's the joke of like, well, oh, this is a very thin line between. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. I've never had one. I'd like to, though. Um, I think I have had one once, I'm pretty sure. And it, if the pie is good, then yeah. it's delicious. I mean, nowadays. Harry's, Harry's Cafe de Wheels. Next time you're in Sydney, okay. seek out Harry's. Yeah. They do good. Which is where um, Dibbler's Cafe de Feet is a parody oh, of right yeah gotcha. well yeah, they used yeah, to have like a, a van on the main strip in adelaide but i was never out late enough yeah but it's it's good i'd be surprised if anyone does a vegetarian version of one but mm. i would totally eat that if they have somewhere in melbourne they probably have a vegetarian version um, i imagine but yeah. it's good like it's a nice it's an it's a weird thing to do but it's actually quite a nice combination of textures and flavors yeah. um so i'd encourage anybody to give it a go but Pea yeah, soup, yeah, give it, a, give it a red hot go. Yeah, yeah, give it a red hot, mate. Yeah, no worries. Get into it. Get it up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had to say it. Um, but uh, Rincewind, though, when they're in the cave, they find the cave that has been there for thousands of years, but only for a few moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, the playing with time that I kind of love. And he realizes that this is a link to where the wizards are. And he manages by painting on the stalagmites and stalactites in the cave to bring them forth into the present not alone, the librarian is there and he still has the bull roarer. And they go back to bugger up in university and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. The unseen university wizards are like, well, we learn lots of rain spells. Like, that's not a problem. And they're all like, we're not so sure about this rain stuff, mate. What are you talking about? But then Rincewind's sitting up on top of the tower with the librarian saying, well, I'll, I'll just, look, you seem like you're doing okay, but I'll, I'll tell them your name and then they'll be able to fix you. And the librarian's like, no, you won't. <laughs> and like pretends to dangle him over the edge, which seems particularly cruel, but. You know, I liked that he didn't really do it. Yeah. Also, like, would he have fallen from two miles or would he have fallen, like, two stories or two meters even? I'm going to suggest he would have done both. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. maybe. And who knows what that means. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Rinswin starts fiddling with the bull roarer, which starts swinging around a little bit. And he's like, did you smell that? smell and uh, they never use the word but they keep talking about the smell that you get after rain and i appreciate mm. them not using the word because it's well as in he probably can't because it gets used up by by poets like every year the quota runs out in january <laughs> well it got used up by doctor who as well yeah well it gets used up by everyone it, Although, it's such a beautiful word i understand why people love it but well, you know, have, have you got a poem called the word no yeah well good 
we should say the word. No. <gasps> oh. It's February, Ben. Oh, if this was January, it would be a different conversation. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we'll so it, used up, I don't even know what word you're talking there's about. There's no core we'll, for that. We'll put it in the... <laughs> We'll put it in the show notes. You can say it. Uh, well, I mean, because the, the word that we're thinking of means the smell of earth after the rain, right. specifically, which I don't know is quite the same thing that they're going for here. Right. Anyway, they, they sort of get a bit suspicious by that, and he starts fiddling with it a bit more, and then it kind of takes on a life of its own and won't let him stop swinging it. Mm. And it gets bigger and bigger and covers the whole continent and starts drawing the storm in from outside of the continent into it, and then there's... The wet with a capital T and a capital W as it rains and storms. Yeah, it's the wet season. And again, you know, this is a conflation of the way that the weather works and the seasons work sort of in the northern part of Australia with the whole continent. But again, you know, Australia is quite big and complex in a lot of ways. And so that doesn't necessarily directly translate to how things work down here in Victoria, where local peoples had a system of six or seven seasons mm. to describe Melbourne weather, which if you've ever been mm. to Melbourne, makes a lot more sense than mm. imposing the usual European stuff. But still, it still feels, as much as I got to the end of this book and felt like, well, there wasn't really much of a plot, was there? It still feels quite satisfying. Mm. Oh, like, so satisfying. And I think that probably is just because Pratchett's so masterful in his jokes and every point is propulsion to the next joke. And yeah. he's so excited about getting there and, like, writing it. And you kind of get caught up in it and it's nice. Yeah. And it's like traveling with your favorite, like, because you know all the characters so well by now. It's just kind of, it's nice to see them in a new setting. Mm. It's like season five of a show where you know everyone and they go on the Vegas episode or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And you see them in a new setting and it's, and it's good and fun. It mm. is a bit like that. Everybody assumes the wizards have done this and saved the day, of course. And they're quite happy to take the credit, mm-hmm. or at least the Unseen University ones are. And this changes the relationship with uh, the wizards because now boats can leave. So they're going to take a boat back to Ankh-Morpork laden with lots of stuff from Forex that they'll be able to sell, including some backpackers. They're not going to sell the backpackers, but <laughs> they're going to go and, and hang out in Ankh-Morpork for a while. Lots of people come and say hello to Rincewind and like praise him and ask him if he wants to stay. He's got a job in the kitchens if he wants. He can come and hang out with the Desert Queen. He can do lots of stuff, but he just turns them all down. Like He thinks about buying a farm at one point and being a sheep farmer, and then he's like, nah, my mm. job's like to go back and be not very good at being a wizard. Because he gets mm. pardoned. He does. Mm. He gets pardoned by the prime minister who's in jail. <laughs> we skip that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. And the librarian is cured when uh, a massive thunderbolt hits the wizard tower and magically cures him. So they don't need to find out his name anymore. It's, it's all very neat. It is. Yes. In a little bow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the creator spirit gets his bull roarer back and he takes out his colorful boomerang and throws it into the sky where it becomes a rainbow, mm-hmm. mm. which is quite lovely. It's yeah. nice imagery. And. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the end of the book. I feel like we've covered a lot of our feelings about it. Are there any bits that people want to specifically call out? Any quotes or favorite parts that you want to comment on that we skipped over? I have lots, but I'm just going to do one this time because we've had a lot of conversation. I enjoy Ritzman's diary at the very beginning where it's like probably Tuesday, hot flies, dinner, honey ants. Attacked by honey ants, fell into waterhole. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's like probably Tuesday, then Wednesday with any luck, Thursday brackets could be. And I liked dinner, either bush raisins or kangaroo droppings. Chased by hunters, don't know why. Dinner, blue tongue lizard, savage by blue tongue lizard, <laughs> chased by different hunters. And then pissed on by small grey incontinent teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's accurate, accurate. 
Do they piss on people? Like- uh, yeah. Yeah. That does happen. Do. Really? Yeah. All the time when, when you hold them for a photograph, not that I, that's something I've done, but I've heard so many stories where people have friends come from overseas and they take them to see the koalas and they pick them up for a cuddle and the koala pisses on them. Like, Terry Pratchett hold totally a, a koala and it, and it pissed I on him? I wouldn't be surprised. Almost <laughs> certainly. And like, especially like when he talks about the kangaroo smelling like. Oh yeah. Like the like floor a hundred, of a. Uh, yeah. Floor of a house with a lot of very excitable puppies. Yeah. It's like, okay, you've stood, you've stood very close to a kangaroo and got a good whiff there. Yeah. There's so many good jokes, but there's a few things that I skipped over that I thought I would mention. I really liked the whole whenever you take a book on holiday and it's mm. a worthy book, it turns into basically a Tom Clancy slash Dan Brown novel, mm-hmm. which I thought was very much akin to the whole Queen tapes in the car or the uh, contents of your pantry in Mort. Mm. And interestingly, the librarian in one of his, when he's thinking about his past, says that he was born in Moon Pond Lane. And I'm like, is that a Mooney Ponds reference? Because we already had one. We just read Only You Can Save Mankind and there's a references in there to fictional Australian soap operas, one of mm. which is just called Mooney Ponds. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, is that what that's come from? So I think it, I think it probably is. I think he's thinking about Mooney Ponds. It's a, it's a good name. It is a solid name. It yeah. would definitely, if you saw it on a map, it would catch his eye. It's like one of those yeah. words that sticks or phrases that sticks in your brain and you forget where you originally got it from as well, I think. Uh, well, but Mooney Ponds is a suburb in Melbourne <laughs> for anyone who's oh, yes. not yes, intimately yes, familiar with Melbourne. It's not a pond that is just very full of moons. <laughs> and look, also it has international recognition that's slightly embarrassing to look at oh yeah it does have international recognition particularly in the 80s and 90s because dame edna everidge is from mooney ponds Mm. and she'd always talk about it so yeah uh it's it's out there i really liked rinswin's thing where he's responding to the the whole coward dies a thousand deaths thing but he says dead is only for once but running away is forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then Scrappy like challenges him on that and is like, but you just end up running into some more danger. And he goes, yeah, which I can then also run mm-hmm. away from, <laughs> which I really liked. There's a footnote about cuttlefish and I love cuttlefish. Mm. I love all cephalopods, but I particularly love cuttlefish. So I, I want to read that one. The ability to ask questions like, where am I? And who is the I that is asking <laughs> is one of the things that distinguishes mankind from, say, cuttlefish. Footnote, although, of course, it's not the most obvious thing, and there are, in fact, some beguiling similarities, particularly the tendency to try and hide behind a big cloud of ink in difficult situations. <laughs> which I very, good. Was very good. Is that what he's doing as a writer? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Ah. So, yeah, so but there's just, there's just too many good gags in this book. There's yeah. so many. We haven't been able to mention them all. But you couldn't do it. It's, it's one it of his. It's just one most... long gag in various different forms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, one other quick point I'm going to just sneak in is uh, Rincewind's description of how great the phrase no worries is. It was an amazing phrase. It was practically magical all by itself. It just made things better. A shark's got your leg? No worries. You've been stung by a jellyfish? No worries. You're dead? She'll be right? No worries. Oddly enough, it seemed to work. <laughs> and it does. And I like, and I, 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 I still say a lot of things that I learned growing up that are very no worries. Oh, and just a quick shout out too to, uh, Nullis Anxietis, the Australian Discworld Convention, mm-hmm. who of course take their name from the motto of Bugger Up University. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is oh, just, I want, I want a t-shirt with Nullis Anxietis on it. I'm sure we can make that happen. Oh, just, I want, but I want, I want it to look like a proper university, university one. Yeah, I'm sure I'll, we can make it happen. I'll get yeah. a hoodie. I'm going to get a hoodie with it on it. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. It'll be great. All right, let's get some listener questions because we got we got some great ones. All right, um, the first one comes from Zoe via Discord. So your personal opinion, is Vegemite worse, the same, or better than Marmite, and what do you usually pair it with on toast? All right, so we're going to try and keep this on to less than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
look, I I prefer Vegemite. I have tried Marmite, but I've only tried the Australian-New Zealand version of Marmite, which is different to UK Marmite because it's owned by the Sanitarium Food Company and they put sugar and caramel in it. I think Sanitarium as well is owned by Seventh, run by it's Seventh. Owned Day. by the Seventh Day Adventist Church, yes, which is wild. Anyway, we did have some Marmite in the house, but I always preferred Vegemite. Mm. Yeah, I like it better. So I actually started with Marmite. My dad used to, whenever we went to England, where he's from, he'd bring some back, or my uncle would mail us some at Christmas time or for birthdays and stuff. So that was the normal one to me, and Vegemite was the weirdo this one. This is the UK one, you mean? The yeah, UK the UK one. So it came from England, it wasn't. Which is the original. Like, it's based on the original yeast extract thing, and it's I think they invented it sort of late 19th century, and the company itself has been around since 1902. I might have done a lot of yeast extract research for this podcast. <laughs> You're going to write a book and call it Yeast of Eden. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Okay. Yeast of your worries. <laughs> okay, well, that's that sorted. Thanks. Thanks right. for sorting we, that We out. did have uh, at least one other Vegemite question. Oh, yeah. So this one's from Yogbug, also on Discord. As another Aussie slash non-Brit, my question would be, why do Vegemite and Marmite exist? Oh, wasn't so it, harsh. Wasn't it uh, an, a way to use offcuts from beer? Yeah, so the, you use the remnants of, of yeast uh, used in beer brewing. It's like a, it's like a sort of byproduct. And you can boil it up and add some other ingredients and turn it into a tasty and very nutritious food. Makes the book version very accurate. It, mm. it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, obviously on an industrial scale, <laughs> but it was uh, originally invented uh, by a German person. I don't know if they invented it in Germany because Marmite is originally from the UK. Mm. Um, uh, Marmite, no. <laughs> <laughs> not my, not my mark. I, I feel like we should also say if you've never tried Vegemite or Marmite before and would like to give it a red hot go, as they say, start with a very small amount. Mm. Don't do like the uh, like Americans jam. often do, where they just like slather it on like it's Nutellix. It's yeah. not Nutellix, my friend. No. It's <laughs> thin layer, and it's yeah. best. I feel it's best with some some butter or or butter equipment. I mean, I think I always butter like and think cheese. Real like. butter is the best. Oh, cheese is good. Yeah, butter and cheese, like a layer of butter, some Marmite, and like a slice of tasty or yeah or and we do have the traditional delicacy in australian bakeries of the cheesy mite scroll Mm -hmm. or or appropriate uh equivalent name um which is a cheese and veggie mite scroll like also very good in gravy making gravy yeah um is this a advice or i usually just have slap it straight on the toast i don't mess around with any of this other nonsense like maybe butter can be allowed but i don't it doesn't need to be there it's just very dry without the butter you want my favorite is just toast with nothing on it Mm -hmm. okay well i can see why you would like plain yeah Yeah. all right you're like captain i know (laughs) there was that whole episode where he like (laughs) she said oh you're just having a basic he's like no that's my favorite meal and i was like yeah sounds like a good meal to me almost as good as a plain scone (laughs) it's a glass of water and some dry toast that's (laughs) that's an excellent meal right there next question from sven ukerman on twitter what would you rather eat? Wince wins, wince wins, <laughs> wince wins, <laughs> wins, beer soup, or one of Dibbler's dishes slash sausages? Can I um? Can I come in first for this? Yeah, come in. Do I have to choose? I would like them together. I feel mm. like that would balance it out. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'll allow it. I mean, I, there's no rules. <laughs> it's like especially like one gross thing or the other gross thing. I'm like, no, no, put them together and they cancel. Well, look, I, I, now I'm a vegetarian. The, the choice is very clear for me. I'm not going to eat a meat pie or a sausage. So, uh, the beer soup all the way, mm. but also it turns into Vegemite. So mm. I'm really into it. And yeah. it's got all these vegetables in it. You oh. eat a lot of it. Like it, it's like eating a jar of Vegemite. But I love eating a jar of Vegemite. I mean, what? I don't, I don't need a, a whole jar, Ugh. but I like Can most, I think like most kids who grew up on Vegemite, 
or, or like a lot of us anyway, I, I have gradually had to increase my amount of Vegemite because, yes, my tolerance has gone up. So I can't do the scraping anymore. I've got to like lather it on a little bit. But even for me, there's there's a point where it's too much. Mm. Are you going to tell us that you put it on ice cream like some sort of ice magic stand-in? I, I have tried Vegemite in some sort of sweet delight. I can't remember what it was. Might have been ice cream. And I was, I was okay. I mean, it's that weird it's umami salty. flavor. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. salted caramel. We had it at the cinema one time and it was, yeah, like salted caramel, but it, the off-putting bit was that it was gray. Mm, that is off-putting. Yeah. Uh, okay. What's, what's next? Next one's from Molikov via Discord. The last content has parodies of Crocodile Dundee, Mad Max, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, Sydney Opera House, The Peach Melba, The Cafe de Wheels, The Pie Floater, Skippy, and a whole lot more. What Australian cultural icons or stereotypes could be added to a revised edition if The Last Continent, if it were written today? Anything that's come out in the last 20 years or perhaps even before it. Oh. I was going to say, if it was written right now, maybe like Barnaby Joyce and Tony mm-hmm. Abbott um, would be the two easy <laughs> easy, easy reaches. Like onion eating? Onion eating being one. And yeah, I don't know, just... I think Barnaby Joyce is kind of already in there, I guess, in various different forms. <laughs> Maybe well, he just uh, murders everyone's dogs as they come in. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Mm, that would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. You know what? I, and I think it's the Mooney Ponds thing that, that sort of put me onto this. It, we know it's glaringly not there is any kind of reference to neighbors or home in a way. Mm. Or, or beaches beyond when the, the, the um, camels wash up. When the, yeah, when the camels wash up. And I'm like, why? How is that? There's no equivalent of Erinsborough. There's no bounce of the dog. There's no. That's true. Why, that seems like a glaring omission to me. Because mm. uh, what is, I don't know, what are the big Australian... Where the bloody hell are you? Where, oh, yeah. That would definitely yeah. feature. There you go. Now you're talking. And some sort of like a uh, magical way to transport yourself between Forex and Ankh-Morpork, which would be some sort of Pistake of Qantas. Mm. I mean, that's that seems that seems reasonable. I'm just like, I'm going to think on this all the way home and come up with like five really good examples but it's also it's quite hard to say because we can't see australia from the outside yeah so we can only theorize what you think of us well, uh, and miss what fish's, would like reach miss fish's murder oh, mysteries, miss fish's murder mysteries. Mm. that's a big uh, export the other you know the other thing that's missing is it only gets one one line in the entire book is any kind of sport mm. which is when oh well i mean there's the there's the henley on todd regatta right at the end which for those people who don't know is a real race run in a river that never has any water in it when they run it so they're carrying boats or they're on wheels or they're you know pedaling them or something oh we're such a um, weird country yeah it's great uh <laughs> but uh it's because we've imported all this stuff from europe to a country mm. that is not at all like europe like i remember going to the uk and seeing trees there and thinking hey wait they didn't make up those trees in the books that I read as a kid. It's just that they all live on the other side of the planet. It was so weird. It's um, them guys from Christmas cards. Yeah. <laughs> what the? Well, like all Christmas things make sense over there. Like yeah. Southern Hemisphere, it's really hot. And so we like eat mangoes and have picnics and, prawns. and stuff and prawns. And we have pictures of Santa wearing shorts and a singlet. I mean, we still have roast chicken and mm-hmm. like... Christmas lights, but we only turn them on at like 10 p.m. at night in the when it gets dark. And so, like, when I went to the UK and had a Christmas in the UK, I'm like, oh, it gets dark here at four. It makes sense why you have Christmas lights. Everyone's very depressed. And there's the markets, and you can go out and drink a hot drink while it snows into it. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's the Christmas cards again. Yeah. 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 Anyway, to answer your questions, Ben, uh, wait, no, Molokov, um, lots of things, yeah. <laughs> lots of things. I'm sure there's more. Uh, I, I haven't thought of any other ones off the top of my head. Fires, probably. And keep thinking of that. Oh, yeah, that, that would have to be it, wouldn't it? Now, if you're mm. writing this book now, 
it'd have to have bushfires. All, yeah. Because there's no fire. fire. There's, I mean, the, the brewery kind of almost burns down and there's that slight reference to, um, the pub with no beer when they talk about, oh, it's a place, it's a brewery, no beer. Mm. But that's about it. Oh, Steve Irwin. Oh, Steve yeah. Irwin no Steve Irwin. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Good yeah. Point. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one is from Joel Molan by Discord. What Australian stereotype from the book that made you cringe is embarrassingly true? Fair go, Dibbler. Fair go, Dibbler. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. plenty of people really think that way. I mean, as the well, look, you know, the the we recently had a firefighter who was made famous for telling the prime minister to get fucked for his comments about the fires. Mm-hmm. Who then uh, there was a clip released of him endorsing Pauline Hanson, whose views are very similar to Fair Go Dibbler's. Um, and as someone actually pointed out on internet, I forgot to mention this before, they both come from the fast food trade as well. Because mm. uh, Pauline Hanson famously, when she first became a politician, her only previous experience was running a fish and chip shop. And everyone made fun of her for that, which was quite classist and rude, but at the same time, not entirely unfair. Mm. So there's that. That's true. I mean, a lot of the country stuff, a lot of the, the slang... I mean, there's the bit where the, 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 there's a bit where the, the horsemen are sort of arguing amongst themselves if Clancy is just making shit up. Um, but we do have a lot of ridiculous phrases. Most of them are not as specific as in the book, but we no, definitely do clearly, say a lot of the things. He's clearly made up a bunch, just like seen, seen the sort of format that we work with and is yeah. like, let's just go, go buck wild with this. But it's also, it's all like, you know, the, the great, great grandchild of cockney rhyming slang basically sure is is where its sort of origins lie but the one that i heard for the first time in my 20s that apparently is a is a common one was we're not here to fuck spiders i'm like yeah yeah that is real like there's a whole subset of people who are like it's not real someone made it up i'm like no i've heard that said yeah yeah in real life before someone, i saw it on the internet someone may have made it up but it's real now <laughs> yeah. i'm like i, mean, I had it, a t-shirt with it on it's, it's just real. a more extreme version of here i'm not here for a haircut mm. which is another which I've one i've never heard of it's like you know it's just i mean because a lot of this stuff is not it's where it's not cockney rhyming slang it's just irony it's like Mm. i'm gonna say something that's not true like the traditional nickname for redheads is bluey Mm. because you don't you don't have blue hair (laughs) red hair and i and i got that you know when i was a kid so it's this stuff is real a lot of it is real um but uh, yeah i think i think fair go dibbler worst the worst one the worst worst one very true one but very true yeah this one from Sally Smith via Facebook. What bits do you think would go over the heads of non-Australians? So asking as an immigrant who always loved this book, but even more so after I could pick up on the more obscure Aussie references. I, I can't tell, actually. I don't think I have what? perspective. Well, Café de Feet is a very specific a very reference. Specific, yeah. Because it's about a, a particular locally famous restaurant in Adelaide. Oh, Sydney. Is it in Sydney? I thought it was in Adelaide. Oh, there's probably one Maybe there's both. more than one, yeah. yeah well, that went over my head, so it's not Adelaide. Okay, all right. No, yeah. I didn't know about your open monster, so. Well, yeah. Maybe Skippy, the kangaroo. Yeah, maybe. We talked I about mean, that a little yeah. bit. I mean, yeah, it has been international. Mm. I think people still get it because it's clearly a story about an animal warning people, and that's mm. like a pretty universal thing. Oh, I know. The band from Snowy River, the specifics of it. Yeah, I That's didn't get true. that at all. And mm. yeah, I, I, I guess if you don't grow up through the education system here, you probably won't get that because nobody really, not many people, I don't think, um, still read bush poetry. Yeah, That's the TV true. show didn't go that far, I don't think. Uh, and it wasn't really no. exactly the same. Like. No, I mean, and that was sort of like a sequel to the film. So it was kind of spinning off into a separate yeah. story. But the, I mean, you know, and, and even Waltzing Matilda, like most people in Australia disagree slightly about the lyrics to the song. Mm. So uh, I don't know how well you would, you would get that 
Um, and a lot of, cause a lot of the things are slightly left of field, but they refer to things that we really do talk about. Like those windmills that Rinse Wind keeps encountering and describing, they're real. They're on every farm in Australia. They have those. And I, I've lived in places for shorter or longer periods of time where the only water they have is bore water and you can't drink it. It's not drinkable. Is it because it's like, not you, interesting or? No, <laughs> no, it's because it comes out of a bore in the ground. <laughs> you big Very dog. good. Very good. Very quick. Cool. Uh, but that was good. But yeah, like you can shower in it, but then your hair smells of sulfur because mm. the water's got all kinds of stuff in it. So you, you have to drink rainwater that comes out of a tank. Um, but there's not enough of that to do everything else that you need water for. So there's a lot of that stuff is real. And I, I don't, I can't really think of, I mean, I think if you don't know what a wombat is, that guy in the pub is not going to make much sense. Mm. And obviously if you've not actually seen Mad Max, mm. a lot of the Mad Max stuff is not going to make sense. So there's lots of little bits and pieces there. Yeah. Uh, this one from Natalie Haig via Facebook. What is your favorite Australian reference? And the follow-up question from Stuart Hodge via Facebook. And what is the biggest clangor of a reference, the one you don't think really works? I think the slang that's not real, I, I got tired of that pretty mm. quickly. But then I think in this book, because I knew where a lot of it was going, because it, a lot of it is like, I'm very familiar with what you're about to make a joke about. I was like, get to the point. Mm. Like the, the, like there's like four pages of rinse when making Vegemite. And I'm like, I know where this is going, mm. you know, so stuff like that. I think some of that weirdly, I think would land much better for other people. But for me, some of it, I was like, just cut to the chase a bit more, just cut mm. to the chase a bit more. But I, I appreciate that, that I, you know, as an Australian reading the book, I'm in a bit of a different position there. Yeah. Yeah. I think grew up by sea was good. Oh, that was, and fun. it came up at just the right intervals. Cause like, I, I'm sure I've looked up in the past. I still don't know what it is. I would have loved, and this is not quite the question, I would have loved there to be some references about how none of us know the second verse of our own national anthem. Well, so you say that. Except for cops. I do. All, yeah. But, and I'll tell you why. Because you're a No, because... <laughs> oh, no. Ben. <laughs> I have You've to tell to you tell if us. I was a cop. <laughs> no, I'm not a cop. But when I was, it was exactly the right age that I was in primary school when it became our national anthem. Oh. Because it's only been the national anthem since 1984. And that was when I was in year one. And so in my primary school, like in most primary schools in Australia at the time, they made us all learn it. And we learned all the verses. Because there's not just two, there's three verses. What? And I don't remember the third one very well, but I definitely remember the second one, which begins, Beneath our radiant southern cross, we'll toil with hearts and hands to make this commonwealth of ours renowned through all the lands, right? That's that's well, the second really, verse. They really got that jingoism. No, you got to do um, the, like, Beneath our radiant southern cross and then just like a vague trailing off. Uh, is- but that's a joke that he makes in other books of yeah. like people getting to a, like singing that's the chorus. That's universal and- though. Exactly, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, people make that joke in America where everyone's supposed to know all the words to the Star Spangled Banner, but most of them know like the the famous first bit, mm. and nobody sings it in Australia. Like it's a like it's a look. It's a it's a it's an okay song. It's got some lyrics in it that you wish were true that it's not. Like you know, boundless plains to share is in there, mm. right? Like we've got we've got plenty of room. Yeah, but we're girt message. by sea, so that's yeah. Which is great. Which just means being girt by something just means it encircles it. <laughs> That's all it means. It means you're on an island. It's like boring. Like every continent is, is girt by sea, uh, but not every country, obviously. Anyway, so yes, there's some in there. Um, <laughs> I think if I had a favorite, I had to pick one favorite. That's hard. That's hard. I, I think I really enjoy all the stuff when Rinswin is running around bugger up. And there's all these like little references to different, cause it's like a, such a mashup of cities. Like, cause, you know, Fairgo mm. Dibbler comes from Burke Street. 
Um, hmm. And then, you know, there's the Opera House and then there's the Mardi Gras. So it's mostly Sydney, but there's bits of other cities in Australia thrown in there. I kind of in- enjoyed a lot of that. Actually, the one that's really specific that I think nobody gets, and I don't know if this is really a thing, is, you know, there's the big mascot of the Rubia Company hmm. that is, is lit up by lanterns and then it gets on fire and it's destroyed. I'm pretty sure that was an actual thing, like that there was, and I tried to look this up and I couldn't find it, but that there was a big kangaroo mascot that got burned and they had to rebuild it. But it was kind of horrifying because you were watching this thing. And I don't know if I'm imagining that because there is one called Matilda, which was the Commonwealth Games mascot from the 80s when it was in Brisbane, I think. And that's still on the Gold Coast somewhere or in Queensland somewhere. For ages, it was out the front of Wet and Wild Water Park, which is on the Gold Coast, which is all like, you know, pools and and, uh, water slides. Um, And it's this giant animatronic kangaroo. And I'm pretty sure there was another one that like burned and kids were horribly scarred by watching this like giant animatronic kangaroo burn down. But I now I'm just wondering if I made that up. But it felt like a reference to me. I feel like if this book were getting written today, then you'd also maybe include all of the giant... Oh, the big things. Oh, like Sky... Sky, No, not Skywell. Like the big pineapple. The big pineapple, the giant koala. The big prawn. There's a big prawn. And also maybe the Coke sign. The big banana. That's kind of Harry Cafe DeWheel's level of... um, uh, of specific. Oh, I- the one that I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't get, there's a very quick reference to banana bending. They talk about a banana bending factory, mm-hmm. which is just like it's a nickname for Queenslanders. Ah, is interesting. It? Yeah, banana huh. benders. All right, so three quick ones to finish off. This one's from Maddie Preston via Facebook. Which is your favorite Rintwin book? Me, it's always the most recent one I've read, just changes. It's whatever one. I quite like this. I think this might be my favorite now. Of the ones we've read. I haven't read them again recently, so yeah. I couldn't say. Um, I have very fond memories of uh, The Color of Magic and the White Fantastic. Yeah. Hmm. But um, I mean, I do, they were quite early. I do really love those books. Mm. They're very different, but I don't know if they're my favorite Rincewind books sure. uh, as much as I really love them. I think I think this one, and, and interesting times for all its problems, like Rincewind is at his most Rincewindy, like I said mm. before. In this one, he's at his most Rincewindy, but he also becomes this sort of you know, what I wish Australian heroes had been like when I was a kid. So I I don't know. I think maybe I like this one the best at the moment. But we'll see what happens when we read the others. There's still at least one more to come. This one's from, you know, Funkenstein. Would you move to Mono Island? Uh, probably not. I'd, I'd like to visit there, though. Imagine, like, if you stepped on the island and suddenly, like, you know, a cheesecake plant grew. Or, like, go and tinker with an elephant. Oh, you know, I would be thinking, you know what, I would go, I would go on the island because I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, I'm a... Still a fairly newbie vegetarian. I've been mm. vegetarian for a year or two. And, uh, and I, 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 I remember and enjoy the taste of meats. So I would go meat on pie, the island. Meat pie floater plant. Yeah. I'd get a meat pie floater plant. <laughs> yeah. Or a, yes, or a, like a pork belly plant. Like all the, the, the meat things that I remember really enjoying, but like plant versions that taste exactly the same. Oh, that would be so good. I'd love yeah, that. Good. I like it. It depends on when. Like, isn't the dominant species about to be a giant cockroach? I think it's just a regular cockroach. I don't think it's going to be giant. Well, after yeah, you your, don't get your nose story, I don't, I don't think I want to live on Mono <laughs> Island. Um, this one's from James Beggs via Facebook. What do you think Slewd is? Now, this is a reference to that footnote right on the first page or right early in the book where um, it talks about the fact that, you know, these creatures on this other planet probably haven't even, in, um, you know, invented Slewd or yeah. discovered Slewd. Yeah. Um, what do you think it is? Like the Schleem is at, like in Rick and Morty, where they have like every home has a plumbus, and then like, <laughs> it's a stand-in for like a thing that everyone should know about. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't so, know. Something like kind of coalish, but like not as rare. Oh yeah. Okay. 
kind of helpful. Um, like almost like mud, but not quite like you can make bricks out of it. Is it like something that you can use to make cold fusion? I just think it's something that we haven't discovered yet. And Terry Pratchett's t- calling us dumb. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I feel not small. us, not us three, but yeah. humankind is yeah. fair. I mean, but also us too. Yeah, Cause we're, a I've got to say when I, when I heard the word, I kind of imagined a kind of rain like substance falling mm, like from the sleet. sky, yeah. but like sleep. But also it was like, you know, when you get like a, um, one of those gel packs, like one of those things that you put in your freezer as to use as an ice pack. But when it's thawed out, it's like this sort of weird gel. Mm. And when it's sort of half frozen, it's sort of like, I just imagined it like that. And I'm like, but I don't know how you'd discover that. You know, in the forties, how women had those nets, like those fashionable nets to put all your hair in, like it was a snood. Like, yeah. Snood. So maybe a slude is like a snood covers that part of your hair. A slude covers everything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay, I'll pay that. Okay, just like a net. Well, look, this has been quite a fun ride. None of us were quite sure what we think of this book when we reread it, and we've all had a very pleasant surprise. Mm. Um, and of course, it's been very pleasant having you here again, Fury. Thank, Thank you, you so me. much. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, mostly this book with my flatmate. I'm also in a show called Jenny Euphoria, which is doing quite well. It's um, just about the joys of being trans. It's a variety show, sort of largest ca- cast of trans people in maybe in the world, definitely mm-hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Okay. Well, we'll put details of all that and where to find you, but in case anyone just wants to look you up straight away, where's the best place to find you on the internet? Uh, furywrites.com. Great. You've got another book out as well. Uh, I do have a book out. Um, I've got a graphic novel called I Don't Understand How Emotions Work, um, which is just about the corruption of memory and time. If you are interested. It's still available. It's still available. Yeah. It's still floating around. You didn't get it last time. Now get onto it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we'd just like to thank all of our supporters as well for making the podcast possible. You make it possible for us to make Pratt Chat without needing to have any ads, uh, which means we can make it the way we want to and still make time to make it sure it comes out to you every month so we can read every single book by Terry Pratchett. And as impossible as it seems, there are more of them than when we started, even though he had already passed away. What sorcery is this? <laughs> um, but we will, we will read everyone. Um, we'll get up to episode 75. We're, we're, we're nearing the halfway point. Mm. We've been doing this for two and a half years now. It's a trip. It's mm. a crazy. And if you'd like to support the podcast, head to our website, pratchatpodcast.com. You can find out all the details about how to support us. You don't have to support us monetarily. It also helps us to spread the word. Tell your friends who like Terry Pratchett or who might like to get into Terry Pratchett about the podcast. And if you give us a review and a rating on whichever podcast directory you use, that also helps people find us. So that's a big help to us as well. But of course, we'll be back next month like we are every month. And next month, Liz, we're going somewhere we've never been before. Yeah. It's familiar, but not quite familiar. It's the long earth. Yes. We're going to take a step sideways to an alternate dimension and kick off our coverage of Terry Pratchett's epic sci-fi series, which he co-wrote with Stephen Baxter. It's another one I've never read before. So I think that's going to be a lot of fun. If you want to ask us questions about the long earth, you can ask them on social media using the hashtag Pratchett30. We'll see you for that next month. And until we see you next time, don't come the raw prawn with us. Had to say it. No worries. Yeah, no worries, mate. (laughs) You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and Guest Fury. Pratchett is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast, not Prado, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. 
Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PrattChat29. PrattChat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com. Yeah, nah, nice one. <laughs>